Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support. All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision making. Welcome everyone to Teeth and Titanium. This is episode number 35, our September 2023 episode. Oscar, how's it going? I can't believe the summer's done. That's how I feel. That's so sad. I know. Yeah. And so, you know what? It's sad. It's sad and happy in both ways because it's sad that the summer's ending, but it was a busy time. So it's, it's almost like a little bit nicer to have a slowdown as well. Yeah. The slowdown definitely happened. We, we kind of predicted this on our last episode that August would be crazy and September we'd be seeing all these patients and consults and yeah, treatments yeah. everything that we everything were... that was delaying it's like oh you need a single tooth extraction oh you, you can't come in the summer it's impossible i can't get you in. <laughs> yeah oh, uh, <laughs> office is closed yeah yeah exactly but i know you're here tomorrow no no we're closed we're closed <laughs> all our spanish-speaking patients are yeah. allowed to come tomorrow <laughs> he's like i speak spanish i'm like no never mind <laughs> <laughs> never mind yeah. yeah so definitely uh definitely feels like september is not the same as august so i've been busy but uh, I don't mind. Busy. I don't mind it. Yeah, I don't mind it not being as crazy as uh, August. I'm not going to lie. That's what I mean. Like, it's sad because summer's ending and you can feel the, the weather turning, but I don't mind a bit of a slowdown after that crazy busy summer that we had. Definitely. And we have a great episode. We got a lot to talk about. I have a feeling this is going to be a long episode because our guest segment was extremely long because there was so much to talk about. But without further ado, let's jump into our current events. So current events, Oscar, we'll try and get through this as quick as we can to save time for the rest of the episode. But I really feel like the theme of this episode is really full arch. I mean, we have a, a guest coming up. I mean, no spoilers. But impressive. A, a lot of uh, impressive, a lot about full arch. And, you know, this is a September episode. We have the upcoming Quebec meeting. So this was actually really nice. And we mentioned this on the podcast before that if people have meetings that they're organizing in Canada or promoting, like we always like to promote meetings that we like or enjoy that we know people. And, you know, Tony Shahadi. He must be like some part of the leadership of the Quebec Society, or I don't know if he was just organizing this meeting because that was his job, but I assume he's somewhere in the leadership tree there because he had sent an email out to the COMS saying, we have this Quebec meeting, we have Carlos Aparicio coming to teach the Zygoma course. And you know me, Oscar, I'm not that great with like famous oral surgeons or people internationally. I feel like you have your finger a little bit more on the pulse of like known people. Mm-hmm. And right away, you said that this is the people that this is a course people fly to New York for people. Yeah. I think people fly to Spain for this yeah. course all the yeah. time. So it's a big it's deal. And they're bringing him to Quebec at a reduced rate. So he is kind enough to open up to the CA almost membership so that other people could join, even if you're not part of the Quebec Association. So obviously for me, you know, I know a lot of the Quebec people, my alumni, McGill. So instantly I jumped on this opportunity. So I will be heading there at the end of this month. Brad, I think you're coming too, right? I was about to say, it's not only you going, Brad's going too. Yeah, I'll be there as well. Brad's coming up. So really excited to, to see you in person, Brad, and, and hang out at the meeting. Also, you're unfortunately not able to make it is what I understand. No, I'm not. And honestly, the more you guys talk about it, the more mad I get. The FOMO is starting oh, to creep yeah. in? Yeah, like it didn't, it didn't care when you first signed up. Like I did care. I was like, oh, I'm missing this course, but I was fine. And now the more we talk about it, I'm like, oh God, I wish I was going. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do it, think it's, it's, it's going to be a good idea. course for sure. Yeah, definitely. And it's very thematic for me. You know, as, as you know, I'm getting more and more into the zygomatic implant game and things like that and 
happy to report, you know, I did a case with another Nicholas McCool in my office last month. And, uh, you know, it was a first for the office. First time doing a Zygomatic yeah. case in the office. So it was a big deal and everything went super smoothly. The patient was happy. So it's kind of a big milestone. So that was really exciting. And then it, it's actually nice because it's nice to follow up, you know, practical experience with more didactic experience. It's yeah. nice to follow up didactic experience with more practical experience because you and I both know. Learn. Yeah, you and I both know if you just, if you just, listen all the time you'll you won't get better but also if you just do things without proper instruction you also won't get better well, you also won't know so what you're doing wrong yes yeah yeah like in, in like let's say six or seven cases may out of ten may work because they just worked and you kind of figured it out but you don't know why the other three to four may have failed so this is i think a perfect thing for you that you just recently did a hands-on case and now you're going to get the didactic part again yeah so super super excited for that one good thing about you know, the summer ending as well as that, you know, you and I have mentioned that we don't, we have young kids, so we don't need to travel in the summer. The kids yeah. are around all the time. Why would we take vacation during the summer? Whereas our senior surgeons right now are like, you know, kids are in school. They got to go when the kids are off. Kid, kids are in school. They got to when the kids are off. So they miss the days of, you know, being able to work in December and August yeah. and then March break. They have to go away now. So what, and I'm not sure. They, I, I'm not sure they miss those days anymore because they're at a point in their career where they don't have to work those days. That's true, but I have heard a lot of them you know, comment that, you know, they they wish that they could, you know, go away other times, but, you know, they can't because their kids are in school yeah, the whole year. Yeah. But you're right in the sense that maybe they're a little bit more stable. And one thing that we both did kind of independently of each other was we both booked vacation in September. We talked about this last episode. Well, it was not even just September, the same week off. This is the same week. And I reached out to you saying, oh, like, we'll coordinate after the episode. And Brad had actually asked us, oh, you, do you guys finally travel together? Because we've talked about this for years, going, yeah. going together on a trip, and we've, we've never done it. And I told Brad, no. So I went to Florida for a week with my family. I had a great time. It was our first time traveling as four of us with the two kids. We just went to Florida, hung out on the beach in the pool. It was really relaxed and really, really nice. I really enjoyed it. And I invited you. I told you where we're going, what hotel. I sent you a message. Yeah. And what's funny is I'm not a, you know, a big social media person, but my wife Bianca is. And her and Lexi are friends, obviously. Yeah. So I will get a lot of updates on your life through her, <laughs> despite us talking all the time. Because... We're going to get into this later on about traveling, but she will literally say, oh, Oscar went to Paris? And I'm like, is he? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Like, I haven't, I haven't talked to him like, in three days. And she's seeing like Lexi's photos and like uh, videos from Paris. So why don't you tell everyone where you decided to go? You, you, you shunned me in Florida and my invite, and you decided to go where? So okay, let's be clear. I'm going to backtrack. You invited, and I thought, this is awesome. And then I said, when are you going? You're like, first week of September. I'm like, okay, but it's hurricane season. So <laughs> I'm not going to go with my four-month-old and risk <laughs> being stuck in the hurricane season. He's like, you're like, it's hurricane season? So that's when I, yeah. I wasn't going on the trip with you because yeah, you had, I didn't know. there was no thought into this, pro into this plan. I actually decided to go to Europe, and we went to Amsterdam, Bel Amsterdam, Belgium, and in Belgium, we went to Brussels and Ghent and Paris. Very, very nice. And, and you enjoy the trip? Honestly, we were nervous. So I, I had booked like flights that you can cancel up till two hours before the actual trip. And I called Lex on the way home from work because I worked on the Friday the day I flew out. I worked and I was like, hey, how was your day? And she's like, it was good. A little bit stressful packing. And I, and I was still nervous. So I'm like, if you want to cancel, we can cancel. Like, don't stress. So that's how I went into the trip. I went in worried, even though I'm a big traveler, so is Lex. But it was the best decision we could have made. We had so much fun, like the memories we made and just watching how excited he was. And if everyone's going to be like, he's four months, how he's not going to remember anything. He's not. But we're going to remember kind of his facial expressions and the pictures we got to take with him. So it was amazing. He had one tough day that we just kind of slowed down and took it easy around the hotel. But every other day he was, he did awesome. 
Yeah, you sent me an amazing picture. It was like the three of you under the Eiffel Tower. It's yeah. a pretty badass photo. Yeah, yeah. So it's I would say I wouldn't change that. And it only reinforced that we would want to keep traveling with him. Yeah, that's good. Because I remember you were obviously huge on traveling before. And we always wanted to be able to keep traveling. You said, And you said we are planning going to continue traveling in your house. That's pretty good. I did want to bring this up actually in the current event because you're known amongst our friend group and even colleagues as kind of like a travel expert. Like you travel a lot. You really like traveling. And you've kind of mastered the art of traveling. So I thought maybe it'd be helpful to give like Oscar's travel tips. So I want to ask you like, this might sound like basic questions, but I just feel like you figured out the system better than other people. So let's talk about booking right away. You just mentioned that you were booking like refundable flights that you can like cancel last minute. Yeah. How are you doing that? Is this points? Is this cash? Is it yeah. more expensive? Like how exactly are you doing this? So on like, obviously like Canadian flights, I always just buy like with cash. I just buy regular fares. But if I'm going international, I always book on points. It's just mm, more okay. affordable. So I, all my credit cards are point credit cards. And so I will always book on points if I'm going internationally. And then the, the rule with the points booking is that you can cancel until two hours before. If you book the most flexible option in each category. So just like economy has a flexible option, premium economy has a flexible option, business has a flexible option. If you book the flexible option, you can cancel up to two hours before your flight without any penalty. Wow. Okay. So that's good yeah. to know. And so like I and actually never booked that way until we had the little one. Because usually when we booked a trip, we were going to go. Right. They were, yeah. were going to cancel it. But this time it was like, oh, let's just be safer. OK, that makes sense. And then let's say now you've, you've decided you want to go away for this week in September. How are you looking up like where you want to go, how you would get there? How are you how are you making these decisions? So I, I kind of reverse. I don't do it the exact same way. Like we'll find out, let's say, three months or four months in advance. We want to go away. We'll pick a rough time frame, but I won't pick an exact time frame. I'll be like, I want to leave anytime in three weeks in September, any of those weeks. And then I will look at where the flights are kind of the most ideal for us, both in terms of no layovers or the cities that we want to get to, easiest on points, ability to book a business class on points, like for reward space. So really, I am pretty flexible and I, and I structure my trip backwards. The flights are the first thing in the sense that where can I fly into? And then do I like any of those cities or have I been to any of those cities? And then that's where I go from. Okay. That's a good way of doing it. Are you a check bag guy or a carry on bag guy? Oh, until this is the first time in 10 years that I've checked a bag. Because you had all the kid stuff? It, yeah, just just his stuff really made it just we had more stuff. And you can't do that many carry ons when you only have certain hands, right? Like we got to be carrying him. Yeah. So it's just easier to bring one check, one large check bag. But before this, we've been to three week trips, four week trips that we only had carry ons. Oh, wow. Okay. Are you an online check-in guy in advance or you are go to the airport and check-in? No, yeah, I'm on the app. Like you've been checking before. Come on. Don't be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> are you flying business class or economy? 90% of my flights are economy. Lately, we've been lucky enough to take business class flights, but they're again, always on points. I wouldn't pay for a business class flight. I'm not at these guys where they've been working this long that they can actually pay for these business class flights. So that's why I'm saying more. I'm looking for availability. That's why my flights are the first thing I'm looking at, which, I, which is why I don't need to leave on, let's say, September 15th. I can leave on the 17th or 19th. I will be flexible with my days. And then if there isn't any, then, then again, 90% of my flights are economy. Fair enough. And last question is, so how do you factor in, because you're talking about this flexibility, but how do you factor them with your work schedule? Like what if you have an OR you're assisting or you're in clinic X days a week. Like, how do you factor in that? Like, how does it work for your vacation days or yeah. being away, like stuff like that? So that that is number one, right? Like if I know that I'm in your, first of all, my vacation time is usually booked three, three to four months out anyway. But if I'm in a, or I'm not gonna pick that day. 
like I'm not going to cancel or change that because that doesn't change with just my schedule it changes one of the other surgeons schedule because I'm going to be assisting somebody. And then when in terms of that, I will obviously try to maximize the time off. If you can leave on a Friday night and come back on a Sunday, it's the longest vacation you have with missing the least amount of days of work. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I found that really useful. Like I've been learning these travel tips from you and also trying to schedule with work and ORs and things like that. Like it's tough sometimes. And oh man. It's it, it helps to be flexible on where you want to go, I think. The next thing I wanted to talk about was, you know, speaking of work, and, and maybe I don't want us to come across like all we're talking about is vacation or not working. We do love our jobs, but we do, you know, eventually we're, we're, we're still new grads, but eventually we do want to slow down, you know, you know, take some days off, maybe not work five days a week. Right now I'm five days a week plus call. And eventually I was thinking, you know, if we got to the stage where you and I both had days off during the weekend, if they matched, for example. Yeah. How nice would it be if like we had a day off and that day consisted of let's go to brunch, let's yeah. record a podcast, let's hang out. Like, wouldn't that just be the easiest day ever? Honestly, I think it would make the week so much easier. I'm not the I'm only not person we'd be missing is Brad because Brad, Brad, he'd probably have the day off, but he wouldn't drive he'd all the way to Toronto. He'd come over on his boat, though. <laughs> <laughs> International waters. Yeah. Yeah. But no, honestly, I don't think it just make the day. I don't think the day would just be fun. I think having things like that would make your whole week easier, in, in my opinion. Yeah, something to look forward to. Mental yeah. break too. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Brad, you have a day off, right? You have your four days a week. I think you said right. Yeah, I take Wednesdays off, so it's like oh, having two nice. weekends. Yeah, so, I know. Uh, that is really nice. That's very good because it's right. That's the ideal. On a thing, I think the ideal days to be off are either Monday, Wednesday, or Friday. Yeah, yeah, because Monday and Friday are like a long weekend, and Wednesday breaks up the week. Yeah, but and Friday is the hardest because that's usually that's a, a busy that's a surgery. Good, day. Yeah, exactly. So I, no one would so. usually take that Friday off. To clarify, I am. I do have every other Tuesday off. You have every other Tuesday. Off. That's what you have right now. Yeah, that's that's nice. That's good. But I think you'll find though, Wendell, is you're going to use that day to catch up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> especially owning the practice, like just all the yeah. So this is my problem. Do. Is this is my problem? Is it's not the work that kills you, like the five days a week plus call. It's the being behind on everything yeah. in life. I feel and like you're drowning in certain things. The yeah, office. I agree. Yeah, like I have a I have a tally of all these like tasks <laughs> or things I have to do, and it just keeps getting longer and longer with no end in sight. Yeah, like I almost want to keep Lex on mat leave now just so she can do the things I don't want to do, like the admin stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like, you sure? You're... Wendell, how often do you go on the weekends to the office just to get stuff done? He sleeps So there. this is... This this is the thing is I've actually never done that. I know I know Dan used to do that because as you said to catch up. And my problem is when I'm at home, I can't get anything done because what happens is Bianca's very understanding. She'll be like, I'll tell her every now and then it just gets too much until like, listen, like I need a half day on Sunday to literally just sit at my computer and do all this work. Like, look at this list. And and she'll give it to me. But if the kids are home, for example, and I'm doing work and I hear one of them screaming or crying or one of them having fun. Like why I want to go play soccer. Like you all of a sudden you feel like, oh, I'm missing out. Like yeah, you leave yeah. the office, you go, it's just nothing gets done. So I, I do feel like I, I will need to kind of figure out a system catch up because I'm just falling too far behind on things. And a lot of it's self-inflicted because as, as my wife always tells me and people tell me, I, I've signed up for like way, way, way too many things. So I was about, <laughs> I was about to get into that too. Like I'm like, and I'm like, I'm not gonna preach for Bianca, but I'm maybe gonna give her a hand here because like, this guy. We're on the phone like this week, and I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I want to go play hockey. I'm like, you play <laughs> hockey? How many sports do you play right now? So yeah, so you're going to hockey. I'm like, how many things do you do? You got two kids, and you want to practice. I'm like, she's gonna divorce you. Yeah, don't put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know the problem is. 
and and we're the same in the sense we have a lot of hobbies like i watch a lot of sports i play a lot of sports we have this podcast which thankfully is only once a month because anywhere often there's no way we'd be able to do it i'm part of the ceo mess executive committee so i have to do stuff for that i'm obviously involved in research i have to do stuff for that it's busy you know you, you write articles for example you write textbook chapters everything adds up and it's just like these little things like you know, someone just needs an update on a research project. And you, it'll take you probably 10 minutes to look up the stuff and respond. But when are you going to find time to do that? So I'm probably signed up for two minutes. But as I mentioned, I think it's just a lot right now because I'm still new, you know, to all the hospitals and, and building practices yeah. and something like that. Yeah. I think it will slow down over time. But I, I do look forward to our days off. And it would be fun to just hang out and do nothing. Speaking of the opposite of days off, people getting to work, you know, one of the problems that's going on and we talked about is board exams. And Slow. The NDBE results. So that's the that's the written exam that people have to write now to get your license. So exactly. yep. you can't work as an oral surgeon until that's done. The results came out on September 6th. So congratulations to everyone who passed. But you get you, you write it in June. You get your results September 6th. You then have to apply for a license, which is going to take at least a month or two. It's crazy. So they're basically making it a situation where you can't work as a specialist for like almost six months. You're, you miss half and a year. You're missing half a year after doing four or six years plus yeah. whatever you did before. And it's just, I just feel like it's not fair. It it's doesn't not make really any acceptable. Sense. No. It doesn't make any sense, this model. And the only way I can think to fix it, once again, is if you move the exam up, if it's in March, I just feel like maybe the results come out in June and then maybe you're working by July. I mean, you should be able to work July 1st when you graduate your program or at least August 1st. This is just getting more and more ridiculous. Like, why, uh, why does it take so long to get the results? Do you know? No, and it's a multiple choice exam on a computer. So I'm pretty sure the results are available the next day. I'm sure it's something to do with, you know, when they do that thing where they practice questions, questions, test the questions and bell curve and make sure people that are failing. Like, I'm sure there's, you know, data that goes into it, but come on. Wouldn't you think in a, in a digital age with AI that we can maybe cut that down? You could have the results down in a day. Yeah. It has to be. It can't be September 6th. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Someone reach out to us and give us an explanation. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure one of our listeners involved with NDBE yeah. or RC, I don't know how long the RCDC took, but they already found out their results a while ago. Yeah, at least a month. At least I feel like at least a month ago. So, and that was an oral exam. Yeah, like that, that's what I'm saying. It's not even a, like this is a scantron, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know that there's one. There's one exam. I think it's a CFA, and you go to you go to the center. You write on the computer, and when you hit submit at the end, it says pass or fail. Wow. Like as you as you finish, it tells you right away that's, your score. I think and you that's also pass. scary. You walk out, it's, scary. it's like damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's scary, but it makes sense. It's a computer exam. Yeah, choice. No, I agree. The next thing I wanted to bring up was, you know, there's all been this hype about this Taylor Swift concert in the world. Uh, I don't know if Oscar, you've been hearing about this hype, or if Lexi's a Taylor Swift fan. Or, she's not. Like I hear that about the hype, but no, she's not a big Swiftie or whatever they call them. No. Yeah, Bianca's not either, but the hype is insane. Like people are talking about this, and it just. You know, I have to, you know, you know me, Oscar, I, I talk a lot, a lot of trash sometimes. I make a lot, I make a lot of bold statements. Like that's kind of what I'm known for, but I'm, I, and probably I shouldn't make so many bold statements all the time. But one thing I, I always give myself credit for, and this is like a self compliment, but whatever, is I always own up to my mistakes. I'm the first one to say, listen, hands up. I was wrong. And back in the day, and I think we might've mentioned this on the podcast to call him out. I made fun of Miller Smith and Graham Cobb because when we went to Amos in Nashville, they went MIA one night and we were all socializing. We we're all partying. I'm like, where's Miller and Graham? They're like, they took their staff to the Taylor Swift concert. That's a and classy I remember thinking move. like, yeah, like what? Yeah. No, back like, then. Losers. Yeah. 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 I was like, what losers? They're missing on that. 
And now I'm realizing, first of all, it was a concert in Nashville. So it probably was like an amazing concert for her. Secondly, these tickets are going for like seven grand a piece that's, right now in Toronto. Miller and Green a plus of, move. A yeah, plus are they move. ahead of the curve? Maybe I was wrong and maybe I'm the idiot and, and they're like, right. And when you think about staff loyalty, come on. Like, <laughs> yeah, they're going to owe them forever. You can't beat that. Like, come on. They took them to Taylor Swift concert? That's crazy. Yeah, so I think that was probably 2021, I want to say, or something like that. I'm not sure when it was, but, you know, I must say, Miller, Graham, I was wrong. You were right. You made the right decision. So I just wanted to admit to that. We have a lot of travels coming up. You know, this year I told you that I was trying to not book as many conferences. Last year there were so many conferences, and I promised you know, we have a second kid, do less conferences. And I think I pretty much maintain that for the most part. But coming up, there's a lot of exciting things next year. I mean... We have the ACOMS Faces meeting in Whistler in Canada that we're happy to announce all three of us are going to this conference, which I can't remember if all three of us have been to the same conference ever. I, no, and I, I've never even seen Brad. Yeah, you never met never Brad actually, in person? I'm, yeah, I've never met no. Oscar in person. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you guys like each other in person. I'm not even sure he's real no yet. I'm going to see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's just a minion that does my bidding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's okay, that's great. We're all going to meet in Whistler. And we are happy to announce for the first time that we have accepted the gracious offer from Brian Farrell to do a live Teeth and Titanium at ACOMS in Whistler. So that's going to be super exciting. Mm-hmm. And uh, live episodes great, ski meetings great, Whistler's great. So very very excited for that. So thank you for the invite there. We also have the Canadian meeting that's going to be in Saskatchewan, Saskatoon, sorry, in Saskatchewan in June. I'm planning on going to Amos next year because it's in Orlando. That's going to be in September. You taking the family? Taking the family, going with the whole family and do Disney World plus the the conference. So nice. I think it's a it's a great time to go. Hurricane season, perfect time. It is actually hurricane season, which is hilarious. It's like the same. It's like the same week I went this year. So I guess see, they're not worried. So why should I be yeah, worried? Yeah, exactly. I guess Orlando's more inward. I don't know. I don't, it is. I, don't, I told you I don't look up these things. I'm the opposite of you. I just like let's go to Florida. We'll just book something. You're like perfect. Let's go in the dead of tornadoes. Let's go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then I'm actually going to Prague in April for the AO Face Ahead conference. Yeah, that's exciting. So is this a very, family very one? exciting for that. So that one may or may not be a family one. We're trying to combine it with like a family trip. Yeah. But I definitely am going to the conference because I'm presenting there. Now, you know, Fritz keenly loyalists are going to be like, oh, they're back at it. The vacations are back. Because, you know, we were at Surge Ortho and we're planning, you know, like to plan ahead. And I will say, you know, the first year, as you mentioned, it was ridiculous. I was away the whole time. Last year, he was on vacation all the time. I took no vacation. But this year, we're kind of creeping back towards like, Wendell, are you available? Uh, Wendell, are you available? But again, these, so, you a know. lot of these are courses. Right? They're all and they're courses conferences. and conferences. Yeah, I'm not going to yeah, hold it against like, you. No, I'll have your back on this one. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I need some support against him. So excited for the travels, excited for the conferences, and hopefully other people will join us there. It is tough at the end of the vacation to explain to your kids because now Lennox is at the age where he's, you know, having full conversations. He understands jokes. He makes jokes. He can kind of talk back and give attitude. And he's in that, you know, the why phase where they ask why to everything. And they make that famous movement like, why this? Why that? And everyone tells you it's coming, but he's officially in that phase. And the tough part is it's really hard to explain certain things to a child. Like it's extremely difficult. So at the end of the vacation, for example, I said, we're going to go on the airplane and we're going to go in the sky. We're going to go home. And, he's, and he loves airplanes. He loves going in the sky. And he's like, why are we going home? So I said, oh, the vacation's over. And he's like, but why is the vacation over? I get these questions from Lexi. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. That, that, that I don't know how to explain. Hard. 
I don't know how to explain to a three-year-old why our vacation is over, like why we have to go home. Like it's it's very difficult to explain to them that we yeah. can't just do this all the time. You should be like, your life is a vacation. My life is not. <laughs> I have to pay for your vacation. That's why I have to go home. Yeah, that is tough. Yeah, so. They won't. You can't like rationalize with them. Oh, he's miserable. We got home, and every single day he says, "I don't want to go to school. I want to go to the beach." <laughs> this guy I sounds go like he plane. sounds like a beauty. <laughs> I want to go on vacation. He's miserable now. That's amazing. So we'll see how next year goes. So that ends our current events. Let's jump into our fan mail. So only one fan mail this month. We do want to get more fan mail. We we, we had a pretty steady stream of people. Yeah, we've been uh, slowing down. Emailing. We've been slowing down. So ho- hopefully that'll pick up more people will send stuff in. This one comes from Nasser Al-Shirani, who's a you know, former McGill grad. He was one of my juniors. And also, you met him when he was at the UFT yep. event. Yep. Big, big, he's a big fan of the show. He listens to every episode. And he actually had responded to our previous episode, The Trial of Brad. And he basically had mentioned two things. The first thing he talked about was the movie Clear History. And remember how I told you that if you like Curb Your Enthusiasm, you should watch this movie because it's just a long episode? Yeah. <laughs> so Nasser was the opposite. He watched the video, having or the movie, having never heard of or seen Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh. <laughs> so, he, so he messaged me saying... It was funny, but I had no idea like what the point of this movie was or like yeah. what it was about because because like, it doesn't make sense. Off, you, yeah, for it sure. doesn't make sense. It's, it's pretty much the TV show. So but he recommended. It. He said it was funny, and he said Curb is amazing. And regarding Brad, he honestly took my side and said he thinks Brad may have betrayed us by going to you know other shows and other wow. episodes and other you know podcasts. And he he wanted to ask Brad straight up. You know, does Brad feel that way, or or what would Brad say to Nasser? I don't feel like it was a betrayal. I feel like I was spreading the gospel of Heath and Titania, although I never mentioned that. <laughs> was, it, was this a nonverbal spread yeah. of the gospel? I, I, was ready, I was ready to answer that question if it was asked. You're like, ask me this asked. right now. I got an answer. Yeah. I have a question. Is Nasser trying to take your job? Oh. Oh. The funny thing is I will say this twice. Well, I will say two things. One. Nasser would love, love, love to take Brad's job. And Nasser also knows that he would never, never be asked to take Brad's <laughs> job. Well, you know, I was appointed executive producer, so we have room for a producer to work underneath me. <laughs> <laughs> Assistant to the executive His producer. His pocket just keeps getting yeah. bigger. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nasser, email me. <laughs> <laughs> Brad's already checking out. He wants to just delegate his all his responsibilities. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm also the executive producer of another podcast. You know, I'm creating a network. <laughs> I'm gonna be a media mogul at some yeah. point. <laughs> we got succession over here. That's that's awesome. really my plan here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that man. is so awesome. Well, thanks for the fan mail, Nasser. We appreciate it. That ends our fan mail. So now we will get into our guest segment. So very, very lucky to have this guest on this episode. Oscar, we had talked earlier in this episode about how you're very familiar with kind of international names and kind of a little bit of the history of oral surgery and people doing procedures, part of it from social media, part of it from training, part of it, you know, you just know kind of people around. And when Dr. Paolo Malo was doing a a Nobel course in Toronto, you had messaged me saying, hey, you're going to this course. And I said, what course? And like, it's an all in four course. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, I I do actually want to learn more about that. Who's giving it? Like, Paolo Malo was like, oh, is he good? And you're like, what do you mean? Is he good? Like, he invented, <laughs> yeah, he's the guy. Like he invented this. I was like, really? You're like, yeah, he's the guy. 
So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm down to go. So we went and had a great time. It was packed. And it was clear that I was the only person that didn't realize how, how famous he was. <laughs> but I loved his lecture. Like wow. I told you, like, you could just tell how awesome. smart he is. He's a, he's a genius. And yeah, you'll yeah. see from this guest episode that he, he has long stories. He goes on tangents. But when you, when you think about what he's talking about and what he's creating from he's scratch, impressive. he's impressive. It's very impressive. It's, yeah. it's, it's a very unique level of person, in my opinion. Yeah. So very, very impressive guy. So at the end of the conference, you and I had approached him and said, listen, have a podcast about oral surgery. You have guests. Like, would you be willing to come on? And this guy's busy. He's like touring the world. He was in Germany. Then he came to Toronto. But luckily he said yes. The only awkward thing I was worried about was that he's used to obviously touring the world and being paid to speak and, you know, selling out yeah. all these events. But, you know, we're a nonprofit. We don't make money. <laughs> we don't charge people for things. We can't. We have no budget to pay you. We'll give you a um, thank you letter. We'll give you a thank you letter and a shout out. Yeah. <laughs> but no, he said he was down. It's and so then nice. a, f- a few scheduling conflicts later, we, we, we managed to lock him down. So without further ado, uh, please welcome to the show, Dr. Paolo Malo. Dr. Malo, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Good. I'm doing great. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah we know you're a, a super busy guy. Where, where are you right now in the world? I am in uh, Portugal, in Lisbon, at uh, Malo Dental headquarters. Oh, very, very nice. That's awesome. So Oscar and I had the pleasure of attending one of your courses when you came to Toronto recently in the past few months, and, and we met you, and, and we, we loved the conference, we loved your talk, we loved everything about it. So we said, listen, if you have a spare minute, we know you're traveling the world giving lectures, but we'd love to have you on the podcast to talk about some of the things you mentioned. But Maybe for those that don't know a lot about you, can you briefly introduce yourself and maybe tell people a little bit more about you? All right. How many hours do I have to do that? <laughs> as many as the you brief, want. The brief version, yeah. <laughs> well, quite just fast. I was born in Africa in a country called Angola, in the south of Angola, in a small town, which is in the middle of the desert. When I say desert, real means desert, no trees. My father was a professional hunter and a farmer, and that's my background until I was about 12. And uh, at 12, that, that should have been something like 1975, there was uh, a revolution, there was a civil war, and I, with my family, fled to South Africa, to Cape Town. And then I did my basic studies in Cape Town. I went to University of Cape Town started to do marine biology, then change into medicine. And then, you know, things started to go bad in South Africa. So my father decided that it was enough that we had a civil war. He was afraid that we would have a civil war in SA. And due to the magnitude of the country and due to the potential of warfare in South Africa, we thought that the civil war in South Africa would be really bloody so we decided to go to, to to go out of south africa so australia was australia and canada were the two possibilities canada was too close too too cold so <laughs> we <laughs> we agree <laughs> yeah so we we kind of thought of australia because it's very similar to africa in in many ways of course it's much more sophisticated and uh, everything but but he, the 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 countryside and this the lifestyle is very very african and 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 actually i i spend some of my time over there now and and probably will spend more time over there so so i do enjoy australia 
the thing is that I end up coming to Europe to to do medicine, to start studying, to do neurosurgery. And then my uncle, being an orthodontist and the dean of the dental faculty in Coimbra, which is a town center of Portugal, and and I living with him, you can imagine that every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, he would brainwash me and, you know, <laughs> took me out of neurosurgery and I became a dentist. I don't, still today don't know if I did well or not. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's another issue. So that's it. And then I did my PhD and I, and then later on, I went back to my roots at the age of 35, did agriculture. Uh, course. I am a farmer myself. No and way. I've always been a farmer. Yeah, yeah. And 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 then I and then I became a researcher, a dental researcher. You know, if you told me that 35 years ago, I would say you've been smoking something funny. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. That's basically basically my my life. And the rest of my life is it's pretty much public now you know, started, finished dental school. They gave me the three first, the first three years of medicine. I had, I had, let's say, correspondence to dental. Dental was six years in Portugal, Europe, six years. So they gave me the three years and then I just had to do three years more. And so the three basic years were, were given to me. And then I did the three specific years. And then I, I graduated in 98, I think. And, and then, and then very early in my life, immediately after graduation, some of my teachers invited me to work with them. And basically they gave me, they gave me the work that they did not want to do, (laughs) (laughs) which is basically treating family and friends. (laughs) And, and then, and then of course, you know, after a while, I, I start thinking, you know, that I need to get out of this. And I started with a friend of mine, started a small clinic with one dental chair. And in 2000, I started to ask some serious questions about implants. I was, I was trained initially as an orthodontist, but never actually finished. And uh, then went into prosthodontics. And, and in my, in my days of prosthodontics, I, I was challenged by many cases that we did not have teeth or the teeth or the roots left were not good enough to make a bridge. So, so I started, started in the first year, start inventing stories like cutting one root out using another root and, you know, things like that, you know, which obviously solved the, solved the problem for, for a couple of years. And then, of course, that problem started and lost the bridges and everything. So at one point, and that was one year or one and a half years after I started started having these problems. I said, you know, we can't go this way. This is something that cannot go this way. So at that time, I heard about implants. At dental school, we did not, we did not had any really education on dental implants. That was the early stages, late 80s. Although, of course, there were implants already, but, you know, it was not on the, on the school curriculum was, I remember there was like maybe four or five lectures on that. And, and so, um, I heard about that. I looked at it. I was not too convinced, but I decided to go to a course. In those days, courses were not easy to find. 
I mean, like in Europe, you would get one course per month in different countries. So the closest course I, I found was in Belgium. And I, I went to Belgium to do the course. I think it was like a three-day course. Then I, I did the course, learning a little bit about implants, hands-on, live surgery, you know, this kind of basic, very basic stuff, you know, like placing one implant and this and that. And, and this was a noble biocare in those days it was called noble pharma. It was a noble pharma course. And that was given by, by two or three doctors. I can't remember the name of them, but the surgeon was, was Chantal Malve. And she worked at a surgeon on ULB hospital in Brussels. And there was a, a girl from noble biocare in the course you know, handing out the flyers and handing out the material for you and teaching the guys, actually, the guys and the girls. But I guess in those days, there was actually no girls in the course. That was more mostly a man's man thing. And she was teaching everybody how to drill, what drill goes after which drill and what to do. And, you know, this kind of thing that goes on, on hands-on. And, and in those days, the courses... As I said, they were very rare, not many people looking for courses. And so this course had like five or six nationalities. Like it's Spanish and Portuguese and French and English and Dutch and German, Italians, whatever. And, and this girl was walking around, speaking Italian to the Italians, Dutch to the Dutch, French to the French, English to the English. And I said, wow, you know, really something, you know. And I was really impressed by her. And in fact, I started dating as she, I married her. <laughs> she was impressed too then yeah. I, 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 no she, actually she was not that impressed no she it took me a while to convince her you know i had to step dance around her for quite two or three nights you know, before she 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 accepted the dinner invitation yeah. you know, and, and the dinner invitation she she kicked me back all the time you know i was quite aggressive there, but, you know, she kept me at a distance. So it was really like, you know, it, 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 it was like a torada, you know, torada is in Spain and the bullfighting in Portugal was like that. And I was investing and she was like with the, the red cape, just, you know, missing me all the time. And I was just, you know, going the other way and she went the other way, you know, so that was the, our first, first dinner it was a bullfighting type of dinner. And so would you say that experience or, or that course kind of led you to where we go next, which is what we were lucky to hear you at your talk in, in Toronto, which was fabulous. And you mentioned that before the concept of all on four, you focused on this concept of immediacy. Can you explain this concept and why it is so important? Yeah, I mean, you know, after that, uh, that course obviously changed my life. I understood, I understood that this was definitely one solution. And then of course I wanted to buy the kit the implant kit and you know the products, but nobody, no farmer would not sell sell it to me, because you know you need to do so many hours of uh, of of training and blah 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 before they actually sell you the kit. So not like today. So it was like not like today. <laughs> not like today. And and it's really funny because it was you know it was like the elite and the friends of the friends would have access to the wow. kit and this and that. And so at that time, there was the time that Stroman was in the market. So I said, you know, bugger you, you know, I just go buy Stroman. <laughs> you know, why should I waste my time here begging you on my knees to sell for you to buy a kit of implants, which is your business? So I actually 
I actually contacted Strauman and, and bought the Strauman kit and everything. But eventually, after one week of begging for the, the Nobel Pharma kit, I actually got the Nobel Pharma kit as well. But it was, it was almost like in those days, it was almost like a favor that the company like Nobel Pharma, they actually, it was a favor to sell to you products. I mean, it was just absolutely ridiculous. And so I, we, I went to Strauman and I started using Strauman. And then, and then, and this goes into your question right now. And then I started very early in actually it was in, uh, in 2000. Sorry, 1919. I graduated in 1989. I graduated or 88. I graduated in 1990. I started to think about, you know, placing the implant and immediately loading the implant because I felt that in some cases, the stability of the implant was so good that I would guess that it would work. We still today do not really know how this osteointegration process actually works. We know that different pe people have different reactions to osteointegration. Some will osteointegrate fast, some will never osteointegrate. And so the reaction of the organism to osteointegration differs from individual to individual but it is it is it i felt and still feel that that the first the first couple months of us integration are mechanical they have nothing to do with biology mechanical means that that the implant is stabilized in dense bone it's a mechanical stabilization only later we have catabolism which means the bone is dissolved is eaten away by, by different cells, and there is bone apposition. There's bone, bone being, being made and deposited around the implant. But I couldn't, I couldn't believe that if you place an implant, in a question of days, all the bone around is, is eaten away and new bone is formed. So I, I always thought that this process would take time. And, and if you do, if you do an extraction and then every week you probe the extraction socket, you will see that in the first month, it's very soft. There's nothing because bone is being formed. So, you know, only after like say four months in a healthy young patient, only after four months, you start seeing some kind of density when you probe with a perio probe on a socket. And I did that a lot of times. I probed a lot of sockets in my life to try to understand how this bone growth would uh, proceed. And, and you could see that bone started to, the probe would start not to go deep in the, after like three months, it would start to be very soft in the, in the beginning and then started to go denser and denser. And really only after five or six months, we could actually try to probe and we couldn't really get in. So that means that normally you would expect bone to be formed after six months plus minus one month and not, and not before. Now, that means, that means that if you place an implant, you would expect the same reaction. You would expect bone to take six months to form, right? 
But you remember that if you place an implant after one month, you try to shake the implant and the implant does not move. So that obviously means that it is not immediately full contour of resorption that takes place. So it's rather pockets. So when you place an implant, you would expect a little pocket of resorption on the apex, a little pocket of resorption on the left side and on the right side, upper right, upper left, front, back. So in fact, for the period of six months, you would have different attacks on the bone, and then after you'd have the position. So you would always have a baseline of stability whilst this process goes on. So this was my understanding at the beginning, and and there was not much literature on that, and I read everything that I could get my hands on, but I had this 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 feeling that this was the the way that the process went on. And then I did some tests, of course, you know, I, I, I did some extractions and probes, like I said, I did some implants, and then I would try to take the implant out after one month and two months and three months, and I would place the implant on the wisdom teeth area uh, of some patient that, you know, we would, I would do the treatment free of charge mm -hmm. in exchange. They would like, they would allow me to experiment on them. Most of them were just family members. <laughs> <laughs> we can say that now it's over 30 years, so nobody's, you know, they're not going to prosecute. They're not, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's too limitations of, it's too late now. The biggest thing Oscar heard was, he's like, wait, yeah, can I do yeah. implants for wisdom? Maybe that's a good idea. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so after all this um, unethical procedure, and I, I was quite quite safe to say that an implant, if we had initial good primary stabilization, I was pretty sure that we could place a crown and maybe take it away from occlusion and that would be good. And so I did. So I did 1990, we started this. And it was pretty much 1992, around 1992, that I had two years of maybe 40 or 50 cases. And Astonishingly, I think it was like 100% success rate. Of course, I chose the you know best patients. I chose the front from from first the second premolar to second premolar. Always implants more than 10, 11, or 12 millimeters. So pretty much, and the, it was single teeth in the beginning. So the, the the implant was actually protected by the adjacent teeth. We did not have occlusion on that crown. And then I got a little bit cheeky and I did some crowns and some bridges as well, as well, like two premolars and, and one and two crowns together. Then I got cheekier and I did a canine and a premolar and a bridge, you know, did a couple of things, but it was very, very not, not, it was very empirical, not really on with a study mindset or anything like that. It was really testing because I was to tell you the truth, poop scared of this, you know, because, you know, I, I mean, this was, everybody was telling me that I could not do that. My family members are dentists, you know, I wouldn't even dare to tell them what I did. And, and, and so this went on. It went on to a point that, that I said, hold on a second, I and mean, I need to make this, this visible, you know, because now I need to know what the hell is going on. Am I the one, the only one doing this in the world or somebody's doing this? So I checked around literature and there was nothing on that. The only thing I found was 
equipment that did these mandibulars with the six, seven, eight implants and loaded three or four of them. And then some of them resisted, you know, but there was nothing like placing one implant and a crown and everything went, went good. So, and then obviously at, after one or two implants, I had to change to Noble Pharma because the Strauman implant would not allow us to do that. Uh, the Stramonin, in those days, there was only three companies, basically. There was Noble Pharma, the, the Branamark system. There was the Strauman implant, the Branamark implant. And there was 3i, which, which was literally a copy of Branamark. So because my girlfriend was working at Noble Pharma, I had, <laughs> I had, I had access. Uh, I, I, I still tell her today that you know, the only reason we married is because I wanted to try some implants, you know. <laughs> that sounds funny, yeah. trying some implants with her, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, I tried some Stroman implants because, as I said to you, I started with Stroman. But the Stroman implant would never allow you, not, not the Stroman implant of today, obviously, the Stroman implant of, of those days would never allow you to deliver immediate stabilization because of the shape of the implant. The implant is round in the apex. The implant had a coronal part that stands out of the gingiva, which is kind of like a vase, and then has very little threads. These are, are, are exactly what an implant for immediate stabilization should not have. So it actually was, was exactly the opposite of what an implant should have. So I did one or two like this. I said, forget it. I can't do this. So I went back to the Branamark implant and I started doing the Branamark implant on these cases. And then I got on the phone with one person from Noble BioCare that he, that uh, I explained to him. Actually, he was, he was the, the, the head guy of Noble BioCare in France. I forgot his name. He was Swedish, tall guy, but I forgot his name. And then I said to him, listen, I'm doing this. And he said, you're crazy. You can't do that. Professor Bernmark said that you must wait four or five months before you place the implant. And Professor this and that, and gave me a list of professors that told me that I was wrong. And I said, yeah, I know. You know, can you imagine all these professors? They said, I'm wrong. And I'm just a stupid little dentist here in Lisbon. And I did two years of this, 45 or 46 cases and success 100%. And I'm pretty sure that after two years, the implant does not have a memory to say how he was placed, you know, because the implant after two years cannot say, excuse me, I'm going out now because you placed me the wrong way because professor so-and-so said that you were wrong. So I said, well, you know, I'm... I'm very sorry, but I really do not agree with the professors and with that list of professors because here, look at this. This is two years. So I'm not saying that I'm doing the right thing, but we cannot say that this is just luck, mm -hmm. you know, because like it's we worth are investigating more. Something it's might worth be investing. Here. Exactly. Because mm -hmm. this cannot be luck. I mean, if you did three or four cases and you got away with it, that would be luck. Mm -hmm. But when you come up with 40 something cases, right? Females and males, of course, well, well chosen, obviously, but still, this is not luck. So he said, okay, I can put you in contact with somebody from headquarters. And then he placed me in contact with somebody called Bo Rangert. Bo Rangert was a mechanical engineer that started to work with Noble BioCare, sorry, Noble Pharma, you know, not long ago. He was the beginning, the first of his years. And I explained to him, I said, listen, I got this. And he said, well, you know what? Come up to Gothenburg. Let's, let's discuss that. Tell me what you've done. Bring me the x-rays and let's discuss. So I did. 
I went to Gothenburg and I spent two days with him, you know, explaining everything. And he just said to me, you know, Paolo, this is amazing. Nobody's doing that. I never heard about this. And, and this is really quite out of the, of the norm, you know? And I said, yes, I know. And I'm afraid. I'm afraid because, you know, I don't know if this is uh, wrong or right in the, I mean, in, in, kind, in terms of legal, because if you do something, Imagine if I if I lost an implant, this guy would go to court and say, "Listen, you know." And then we have twenty five professors from all over the world that say this guy is a cowboy, he's a stupid guy, he should not have done that, this and that. And then he lost the implant. He said, "Yes." So we need to make a study with this, and then after the study, we publish. And once it's published, then we can we can start really doing marketing and this and that. So that's what is it. We he invited about eight or nine professors, or not professors, but people that that were specialists, let's say, on implantology. Um, I remember a few of them in the room. I remember Daniel Steinberg from Belgium. I remember um, Henry from Australia. I remember from Sweden, Professor Ingvar 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 something. And, and from United States, Steve, Steve Perel and, and a couple more. And so he said, well, Paolo will be, and I was a kid at the time. And I said, Paolo will, I mean, I just had out of, out of dental school two years ago, right? Yeah. I mean, it was that's crazy. Really very, it's crazy. It's very yeah. embarrassing. I mean, uh, I was almost shaking, probably shaking. I don't remember. And then, and then I, I stood in front of these professors, all of them over 50 and 60 years old. Some of them over hundred years old, and then they would just look at me, and I now I told them what I did, you know, and I just I just saw them head shaking, you know, said, "Oh, stupid bastard," you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, what are you doing, you know? You think you're in Africa or something like that, you know? This is this is Europe, you know. They really, they really, they looked at me with disdain. Only, only three people in the room were paying attention. Only three, three out of eight or nine. That was Steve Perel, that's still alive from the United States, Texas University he was working at at the time, and and Patrick Andre from Perth in Australia. Those were the only two that actually looked at what I presented, together with Bo Rangat, of course, because he's the the guy from Nobel Biocare. Those are the only three that that actually said to me, "Well, you know, there is definitely something here." And we should look at this and we should move move forward. All the rest of them, all the rest of them literally called me names, mm-hmm. literally called me names. You know What they should have done is said, listen, you've done a pilot study. It's an early study. You've had good results. So we should create a larger study with more patients and see if this leads to something. But I will say it's hard. Like he like he said, he's two years out of dental school and these guys have been doing this. That That is a hard thing pill to swallow when you've been told you can't. And then this young two-year dental school kid is telling yeah. you, look what I've done. Exactly. Look, and, yeah. and they're teaching the opposite for 40 years, yeah, you know? That's hard. So, and this is hard to swallow. Yeah. I mean, I understand that, hard to swallow. But, you know, again, but that's where you see men from, from non-men. Men in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the sense that when you have the guts to say, maybe I am wrong, you know? But, you know, you don't expect these from these professors, to be honest, you, know, you don't expect, you don't expect the professor, the professor is like a politician. You'll never say I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> because that is about ego. That's about, you know, I've been, you know, can you say that I've been teaching for 40 years something that is wrong? Because he doesn't understand that he's been teaching what, what he's 
what is correct at that time. No, but we have to understand that what is correct today might not be correct tomorrow. And, and we have many, many examples of that. You know, I always tell this, listen to me, listen to me, but please use your brain and ask questions before you do it. Don't listen to me and go home as if you listen to the Bible or the Quran or something like that, you know, because I'm not, not even religious. So I have this and I show you this. Right, then you use please use your brain. Don't be a sheep following me. Use your brain, ask me questions. If you think that that makes sense, go on and do it. If you think that does not make sense, don't do it. You know, this is this is what you should do. You know, you should not follow anybody. You should not follow anybody. You should follow, I mean, we sh you should not follow anybody just because you follow blindly. You should not follow anybody blindly. Never in your life, not mm. even your wife. You know, don't believe on her. <laughs> Always ask questions. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> where did you go last? Yeah, night? yeah where was dinner? <laughs> why did, why did around, you respond you know? to my text? It's, it's, it's the other way around. Yeah. Where did you last night? I was having a drink. Yeah. Show me. Show me <laughs> <of> a drink. <laughs> but the next question I had is that you, you know you talked about how you, you talked to these reps. You were talking about immediacy and how important that was. But it led to the development of probably you know what you're. We admittedly, you're probably most famous for, which is this all on four concept. So how did the concept of immediacy lead to the all on four? And then how did you start researching that idea? Well, that's quite, that is really funny because, you know, I thought that I would be famous for the immediate load, you know, and, and, and just that just shows you how marketing works. You know, if I told you that I'm the one that developed, invented immediate load, single teeth and small bridges, I pretty much guess that you guys did not know this. Yeah, you understand? Because you would think that it was Branamark or, or John or Jack or, you know, whatever. Why? Because, because this, this method, this technology, this, the, the concept was sold to Noble Biocare that, that placed it in the market under no name. You understand? So immediate load does not have a name, you know, like all on four, yeah. you have a name. Yeah, catchy. Right? Yeah. So it's a catchy. So immediate load was a made known way of doing something. So, so the person that invented and the company that commercialized this idea, this concept are not known. Even Noble BioCare. Uh, Noble Pharma, I should say today, Noble BioCare, of course, that, that were the company that commercialized this idea because this idea is, this is not a product, right? This is, this is a concept. This is a technique that, uh, that you have to follow. There's certain things on the technique that you have to follow in order to achieve higher anchorage, higher stability. But even, even Noble Pharma, Many, and I lecture all over the world, and when I ask them who, who developed immediate load, nobody knows. I mean, just one or two guys put their hands up. But when I say which company did that, they also don't know. Some of them even say Stroman. Yeah. Which you're Stroman right. We, you're right. We wouldn't know. No, we would yeah. never been exactly. told. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, some people say Stroman, mm -hmm. which Stroman just started to do immediate load a couple of years ago, you know, like six or seven years ago, because they changed the implant, because the previous implant could not do immediate load. So that just shows you that uh, Noble Pharma made a terrible job in, 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 in marketing this idea. And, and of course, with that terrible job, 
I lost visibility, so nobody knows. But Noble Pharma also lost visibility because nobody knows that this was the company that brought up this important technique that most implantologists today in the world do it. So this was this is the story. Now, what happened was this, and then I answering your questions, Wendell, all on four. So what happened was this. After I started with immediate load on single teeth, and then I started playing around with small bridges, then I got cheeky. And I said, what if I do not need the teeth that actually support the load in uh, immediate load, single teeth or small bridges? meaning that small bridges and, te- and single teeth, they have the support of the natural dentition, so they actually not are under, under loads. So they are protected. Now, the question was, what if I do a full case without any protection? Will that be the same result? Because the question was, okay, now, now we know that the the integration of an implant, it's not a one shot. I mean, not, uh, the bone does not disappear around the implant in one day and appears in the next three months. No, it does not work like that. It is a slow process of substitution of the bone around the implant that dies with new bone. And, and because of this slow process, then we are okay to load an implant if, if we have initial stability and if the patient does not have a very active immune system. Because if the patient has a very active immune system, the patient will treat that implant as a thorn and immediately will make an abscess or immediately go and try to destroy it. Like treat it like a foreign body type thing. Exactly, which is a foreign body, which is Mm -hmm. a foreign body. Mm -hmm. So I said, now, once we overcome that doubt and you say this works, the second question is, what about load? Would load interfere in this? Because load is a big thing, you know, in the mouth. So I said, okay, now we will try, we will try something without any protection of natural dentition. So a female family of mine needed to have a full mouth rehabilitation on the mandible. So I told her, listen, we will try to do this. Okay, which would be placing an implants and giving the bridge at the same time. Otherwise, otherwise we would have to place the implants, and then in those days we we placed implants in the front of the mandible if we did not have bone in the back, and then we would place a removable denture in the back. So it was a combination of a bridge over implants in the front of the mouth, and then with attachments, and then we would have a removable prosthesis in the back. So I said to her, "Listen." I will, I have this idea of placing implants in front of your mouth and I'll deliver the bridge at the same time. You have no risk. The only risk you have is that you actually lose the implants and I do it again. This is free of charge. She's a, she's a, she was an old lady, passed away a long time ago already, but she was a, a nice lady. And, you know, I was, I was probably the, the person that she most loved in her life, you know, besides her husband, maybe even better than her husband. <laughs> and, and, and she had, you know, she, she looked at me, she really looked up at me because at that time I was started to, to be a little bit famous. Mm-hmm. 
on, on, on lecturing on single teeth and small bridges with all the difficulties that goes. But pretty much I was started to get famous. And I was a, I was a rugby player for the national team. So I was in Portugal, I was a little bit famous. And so, so I did this. I, and I placed five implants, five or six implants. I actually, I don't remember. I think it was six implants I placed. Six implants between the two nerves, six parallel implants between the two nerves. And I placed the bridge only with one premolar in each side. So, you know, mm-hmm. I was very careful and I was very afraid. Yeah. And, you know, and every day I would call her, you know, are you okay? Anything moving? Anything pain? And <laughs> abscess? No, every day. I would call every day. And she was really said, stop calling me every day. Okay, you know? I'm eating steaks. And I said, I said, you eating steaks? It's only one month. I told you not to eat for two years. No, <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. I'm do- doing my life. Everything is okay. I said, damn, this thing is working. You know, this thing is working. So then she came back after like four or five months. Of course, I saw her almost like every two weeks or so. And I called her literally over, almost every day. And then after four or five months, I said to myself, okay, uh, because she complained, she did not have many teeth to masticate. So I said, all right, come back. I will increase the bridge and you will have two premolars. Now, two premolars meaning two teeth in cantilever. Because the, the, because the, the last implant I placed was between the canine and the nerve. So we, we would have the premolar and second premolar. So I did that. And she went back. After 15 days, she broke the bridge. She broke, broke the bridge and then, and then I had to reinforce the bridge. And, and then I start thinking, okay, you know what? This works, but the problem is the cantilever because, you know, this is the problem. So after that, after working, I started to think that I needed to deliver a cantilever. I could not avoid the cantilever because I could not deliver patients just with canine to canine. Some patients we could deliver the first premolar because if the nerve, if the orifice of the nerve was a little bit more posterior, we could fit a premolar, but most cases we could not. And because we would not be, you see, placing a parallel implant, you cannot place the parallel implant on the first premolar because that would eat the 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 curve of the nerve. So you would place the the last implant we would place in the canine. So that's why we would avoid this space, which was about six to seven millimeters in front of the nerve in order to allow for that loop of the nerve and, you know, avoid the anterior loop of the nerve. So literally, I placed six implants, which literally was from canine to canine, just placing implants next to each other. And then, and that's how the first case it was. Then the second case was a friend of mine, an, an, a, a man, a, a gentleman, a farmer, that that I improved a little bit. So well, in this case, I did not do six implants because I did not have enough bone to place six implants. So I placed five implants straight. And then I did exactly the same as I did to, to the old lady. And then the third case, I started to think about the cantilever. These people would go home with maximum one premolar in each side. And I wanted them to go home with two premolars in each side. So I start thinking that maybe, maybe I could angulate the implants. And if I angulate the implant, then the head of the implant would be 
on top of the second premolar because if it is angulated, I would avoid that nerve. I would avoid the nerve loop because it's angulated. And I would have actually two premolars and no cantilever. So that was, in terms of design, this looked very, very nice. You know, I, I designed that. I, I did some plastic jewels and I said, this works for sure. Now, what is the problem with this? The problem with this is that the moment you incline the implant, you do not have space for more than two more implants. Because when you incline, you are actually taking space in the front. So there's no space for even three implants in the middle, not even five implants. So I was forced, I was forced to do it the first case with four implants only, not because I believed that four implants were better than five or six or three or two, but because there was no space to put five, because otherwise I would have done it. So I placed these inclined implants and I said, okay, now after inclining the implants, now I only have place for one or two implants. So let's place two implants. And I placed two implants. And then I delivered the bridge. In those days, some people think that I invented the 30-degree abutment. No, I did not invent the 30-degree abutment. The 30-degree abutment was invented by Professor Brunemark, as far as I know. What I did was I, I, I asked Nobel to deliver 30-degree abutments with different heights, different heights. So I kind of improved a little bit the 30-degree abutment, but I did not. I invented the 45-degree abutment and the 60, but not the 30. So because then the 30 I, had to be there because when you designed the tilted implant, if you didn't have an angulated abutment, how would you even connect it? It wouldn't even make you can, sense. You could, you could not connect it. Yeah. And in those days, Noble BioCare, Noble Pharma was the only company in the world with a 30-degree abutment. All the others did not have that. So it was impossible to do this without not being with Noble Biocare. Besides that, Noble Biocare was the only one, the Noble Pharma, sorry, was the only one with an implant that had fully threaded, meaning that a straight implant fully threaded for a maximum, maximum stability. So we had the right implant and, or the best implant for the, for that situation. And we had an angulate abutment. So we had already Basically, not the best situation, but the, the things, the products that allowed me to move forward. And so I did the first case. And the first case was the first all on four was done in 1993. And in 1993 was done the first all on four, two implants in the back, two in the front, 30 degree abutment, straight abutment in the front, and a bridge from second premolar to second premolar. That was the first all on four in the world. 1993 mandibula. With that, I went back to Bo Ranger to Nobel, and I said, Bo, and this is what I'm doing as well. And then he just joked around, he laughed, and he said, what else do you have in your pocket, guys? I mean, you know, just come up and tell me everything. Just spit it out now, yeah. Just spit it out now, you know, don't give me little things. And I said, yeah, I joked with him. He was, he became a very good friend of mine, a really good friend of mine in every sense. He died of cancer later. And then I, I said, you know, I can't give you everything because then otherwise you're going to run away. <laughs> and, and he said to me, no, I'm not a dentist. You know, I'm an engineer. So engineers, they are, they are open mind. 
to to engineering things. Mm-hmm. Dentists, they they are not. You know, dentists are dentists. Yeah. They're trying to make holes and close holes. They're not. They're not trained. Their mindset is is to to perform something yeah. over and over again that they learned. You know, they're not supposed to be. It's not outside uh, the box thinkers usually. It's not outside yeah. the box. It's they're not disruptive. And you know, every time you do a disruptive thing, then ninety percent of the people, ninety percent of the dentists will say no. You know, and that is expectable. You know, so you cannot you cannot be angry at them because they were not trained to do that, and also and also. Not only they were not trained to accept that things, but also after working as a dentist for a while, you become very routine. Your procedures, everything is routine. You got an answer for everything. It's chapter five for this, chapter six for that, chapter nine for that. So you have a routine. So you, you, you lose your ability to, to start questioning, to open your mind. You literally lose because you become a machine. You open a hole and you close a hole. You open a hole, you close a hole, you know, and, and, and so it's difficult for a dentist to get out of that uh, mindset. Anyway, I explained to them and I said, you know, I need to see if it's really better to have four or maybe three or five, because some cases I actually can place the angulate abutments and still fit three implants in the middle. And some cases I can't. I place the angulated abutments, the angulated implants, and I can only I can only fit one in the middle. So then, with Bowranget, we decided to start a study on mechanic loads on the Anolon four, and it was very clear from the. By the way, we did not have this in the computer in those days. Eh? We had to do it physically. We had pressure gorges. We had to mount the pressure gorges on the implants full of wires. It was just complicated stuff. Uh, always breaking, always coming loose. And, and then we would weld it and then come loose. And then today you go to the computer, you feed everything and you get an answer immediately. Not in those days. Anyway, we, we mounted the, 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 the setup and we loaded four, five and three implants. And it was very clear that when we loaded five, the middle implant did not have any load at all. The middle implant did not work. It was just there for emotional mm-hmm. purposes. It, it was- To make it you feel was, good. It was to make it feel good yeah. because in your inner yourself, you think that the more implants you place, the more, yeah. the better. Mm-hmm. But this is ridiculous. You know, if you have a piece of wood and, and if you st- stuck there 100 Screws. Big nails, yeah. you you go, you're going to break the piece yeah. of wood. Now that's that's the same with bone. You cut vascularization, you make it, you make it more uh, easy for infection to go from one implant to another implant, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So it was very clear from from the first study that five implants were a mistake. Four were sufficient, and then we went to three also. And then when we went to three, it was also very clear that we could take the load. Three, we can take the load as four. But if we had a lot of load on the sides, we would have screw loosening. And we would have screw loosening because of rotational forces. You know, it's the same as if you sit on a chair with four legs or you sit on a chair with two legs in the back and one in the front. In a chair with two legs in the back and one leg in the front, 
you would not dare to stand on top of that chair and change the, the bulb because it's not stable. You can fall. In a chair with four legs, you feel comfortable because it's not, it's not wobbling. So the problem with three implants, it's the wobbling, the wobbling of the bridge. Now, if the lady is 80 years old or the man is 90 years old, there's no problem in placing only three implants. Another way to compensate the wobbling is to increase the size of the implants. So if you have implants of four millimeters in the back and one of six or seven millimeters in the front, there's no wobbling so because the a surface large platform. Yeah. is a large platform. But, you know, it's very difficult <laughs> to place a five millimeter or six millimeter implant in the front of the man. Mm -hmm. so, so basically, we said that three implants is okay, but only for certain type of people that do, are not big biters, you mm -hmm. know, and chewing, um, you know, you know, the guys with the square heads, square faces, big mass setters, that is not a three yeah. implant man, right? Yeah. But the, the, the thin lady, you know, with the old, the, the old folks, then you can do three implants. If you cannot do four, that would be okay. But four would be the standard, right? So all on four was born in 1993, like this. Then from 1993 to 1996, we did a lot of cases just to make sure that everything was okay. And Bo Rangert, in 1996, I think it was spring 1996, he came to me and he said, what if we do this in the maxilla? And because it's basically the same thing, all right, but upside down. And, and that's what I told him. I said, yes, I already thought about this, you know, and instead of the, the, the nerve is the sinus, but the sinus normally is at the, normally the sinus is at the 45 degree angle, meaning the anterior wall of the sinus naturally 90% are at 45 degree angle. That's the natural way, the natural way that maxilla gets resolved. It leaves the anterior wall with a 90, with a 45 degree angle. And uh, today we know why, but in those days we actually did not know why that happened. And so I said to him, I mean, in theory, that works exactly the same. Instead of the nerve, we just placed the implant at 45 degrees, avoiding the sinus. And he said, so why don't you do it? And I said, I don't do it because I'm afraid. I'm afraid because the bone in the maxilla is not the same as the bone in the mandible. Normally, I mean, we are talking normally, right? So normally, the bone in the maxilla is softer. And the more back you go, the softer it gets. And we are talking about old ladies, old folk. I mean, we're not doing this on 25 years old guys and girls. So, and I did not find yet the right person to do this because I wanted to do this with immediate load, not just placing the implants. And he said, okay, let's do this. The moment you find the right candidate, we go ahead and do this. And so I, I came back to, to Lisbon and I was looking for the right candidate. And, you know, the right candidate is not easy to find because most candidates were old people. Old people have softball. So I found a nice guy. He was a guy that had some addict things, you know, and uh, addict problem. And uh, he lost a lot of teeth, you know, the other teeth we could not save, but he was 26 or 27 years old and, and he did not have any money. So I said, listen, 
let let me do this. I will try. I will fix your mouth. I'll place the implants and this and that, with one condition: you let me try something new and new. Again, the same process, unethical. He said, "Okay." He was not stoned when he said, "Okay." By the way, he was was perfectly. He was out of drugs by that time. And and then I said, "Let's do this." So I we cleaned his mouth, and then and then we placed the first all on four, and that was 1996. The first all on four in Maxilla was 1996. I did the case, and it was really good. I mean, you know, after six months, the guy was incredible. I mean, the implants were perfect. Everything was incredible. And I said, what the hell? This really works. And then I got overconfident. I got overconfident. And I said, because I knew from the immediate load single teeth that I was not confident. And then it went up well. Then the all on four mandibular, I was not so confident and went up well. And I said, okay, I'm not going to go slowly now. I'm just going to get a bunch of people and I'm going to go ahead with the all on four maxilla. So I did. I got something like 30 or 40 people, 99% uh, over 65 years old or six years old and, and disaster. So I lost like 30% of the cases and, and then, and, and I lost 30% of the cases and I was not really happy with this. So I, I have, I have. I write everything that goes down on surgery. I mean, even if the patient sneezed during surgery or if got divorced and before, I, I write everything down because you never know. You never know. We're looking when everything goes well, you learn nothing. When something happens or you lose something, then if you have the right data, then you can learn something. But to learn something, you need to find the common denominator. You need to find 10 people that something went wrong. And out of the 10 people, you need to find that something happened under those 10 people. Then you're right on spot. So what, what I, when I looked at all the data, I found out, and it was very, very like sh- jumping in front of me, that I had a problem with primary stability. Some of the implants had spins during the process. And then I went back with the drill, drill wider and placed the implant. Some of the implants did not reach more than 25 or 30 newtons. So I obviously was, to me, was very obvious that the common denominator for most of the cases I lost was lack of primary stability. So then with that, I said, all right, so we have a challenge here, which is the lack of stability. So we need to solve this situation. Now, how, which we did not have in the mandibula, exactly because of the density of the bone. So how can we solve this problem? And, and I mean, you do not need to be very intelligent to understand that there is not many things you can do because, you know, you cannot make bone denser unless you believe in in some kind of religious protocol. Then you cannot, you cannot make even bone denser around the implant, although some people advocate some special drills and some special that. But that, again, we are on the religious ground. So there is no way we're going to change bone density. There's absolutely no way. The only thing we can do 
is we change the surgical protocol and we change the device, the implant. So what did I do? Well, what I did was I said, I'm going to use a thinner drill. Let's say a two millimeter drill to place a four millimeter implant. So then I would get more pressure on the bone. I would get literally two millimeters of expansion. That would give me the pressure. And then I'm going to do bicortical anchorage every time I can, meaning that I would go one millimeter into the nasal floor. I would go one millimeter in the, in the, in the sinus floor. And where did I have this idea from? From immediate load single teeth. The immediate load single teeth protocol, it's about going for bicortical anchorage and going for small osteotomies with either wider implants. So then this was the way to do, to make, to go forward. So we drill with a two millimeter drill. We perforate this, the nasal floor. We perforate the side floor, the lateral floor if needed. And we place a four millimeter implant. So we are basically giving two millimeters of expansion on the osteotomy. So in theory, that would give us the extra, the extra stability by pushing, by compression that we wanted. But again, everything that is on the drawing board, it does not all the time can be transferred to clinical because the moment I started to use a two millimeter drill and only use the 3.8 drill on the first two millimeters of the cortical, and then I placed the, the four millimeter implant, which is the typical regular platform, the implant many times it spins because most implants in those, uh, actually most implants today and all the implants in those days, the apex of the implant was flat, was not pointed, was flat. So if you take a two millimeter osteotomy, you cannot possibly place a four millimeter wide implant with a flat, with a flat apex because it just does not go unless you push it. And if you push it and if you wobble the implant, then the implant sides, it will start moving. But the moment it reaches the cortical floor, it basically stops and starts spinning if it does not spin before. And the moment the implant spins one full circle, you lose all the bone threads that you made before. So basically, you destroy immediate stabilization. So then we decided to go back to normal biocare and say, Listen, all on four works very well in the mandible, but in the maxilla, this implant, the implants available in the market do not work. And so we decided to make a specific implant for maximum stabilization, primary stabilization. So implants, you have to understand that implants are like cars, you know, are like vehicles. You have the truck if you want to load heavy loads, you have the SUV. If you want to go a little bit off the city, you have the old terrain. If you want to go up in the mountains, cross rivers, and you have the little electrical cars to go to, you know, take your children to school. Every vehicle 
is adapted for the function that it is made. And implants are the same. Implants are made to deliver a certain a certain thing that you want to deliver. And in those days, remember that we would make a big hole, place the implant that was almost the same width of the osteotomy. Strauman even said that you should place the implant by hand. They had a device that you place the implant by hand, which means that you would not be placing the implant more than 10 newtons. Noble BioCare, Noble Pharma allowed you to place the implant with the machine, which, which allowed you to place the implant at 30, 40, 50 newtons. The machines did not go more than 50 newtons in those days, and you don't really need it, but anyway. So, so now we are saying that we want a, a thin osteotomy crossing the cortical and an implant that is fully threaded for maximum stabilization, but you want the apex to be conical. Why conical? Because the tip of the implant should be less than two millimeters in order to enter without spinning, without spinning. And, and the name of this implant that we started was the osteotome implant. The osteotome implant was an implant that would be able to fit on a two millimeter osteotomy and push its way through without spinning. So basically that implant was born and it was called the speedy implant. And the reason we called the speedy implant was because speedy was speedy because it sped up, it speeded up the, the, the prosthetic protocol instead, meaning that if we use a speedy, we have so good stabilization that we can deliver the bridge immediately. So we speed up the process. So let's call it the speedy. That's, it's nothing to do with Speedy Gonzalez, by the way. It's just the Speedy. It's, it speeds up the process of rehabilitation of the patient, so we call it the Speedy. So that's how the Speedy came about. Now, this implant also had another feature, which was very, very important, was this. In those days, the implant platform was wider than the body of the implant. So in the Brunemark implant, the body was four millimeters, and then it it uh, the platform was wider, it was like a, a it was like a step on the into the body. The the Strauman implant was worse. Was the platform was in a kind of a conical shape, like a cup shape out of the. So we could not use these implants in an inclined manner, because if they have a platform. On the, on the coronal part, when you place the implant in a 45 degree angulation, the step out would touch the bone and would not let the implant go deeper. So that would be impossible. You understand? So we, in the beginning, we had to use a countersink, something called countersink, which basically it's a drill that removes a lot of bone so that we could literally place the head of the implant deeper. But then we make a, a mess out of the cortical bone. We make really a big hole so that the implant could go deeper. And that is wrong because the best bone is the cortical bone. We do not want to mess up that. So for the first time in the world, we delivered an implant that the platform was the same thickness as the body of the implant. You understand? So that we could place the implant at any depth that we wanted. 
without using any countersink. So we preserved those three, four millimeters, initial four millimeters that are very, very important. Now, this was essential. And that we call today the bone level implant. A bone level implant, it's an implant that the threads are to the top of the implant. And because of that, the implant is at the bone level. It's not, it's not above the bone level like all the other implants. So the speed implant was the first implant in the world at the bone level with a tip that allowed osteotomy to be thinner. So that was a big step forward in those days. But of course, everybody was against it, especially the people linked to Strauman, because the Strauman philosophy was in those days, that you should never put pressure on the bone, which is true. You should never put pressure on the bone, but the bone takes some pressure. We can put some pressure on the bone as long as you do not put pressure on the first two millimeters because those are the cortical millimeters and then you can cause necrosis and premature bone, marginal bone loss. So, but to say that you should never have bone level, because another thing that Stroman said was that because the implanted bone level, the abutment, the connection between the abutment and the implant, there's a micro gap. There's a gap, micro gap, that is between the implant and the, and the abutment. Now, this micro gap being at the bone level would cause marginal bone loss because of bacteria. So Stroman did not like that. Stroman said, we must have the connection two, three, four millimeters above the bone level. So today, of course, they copy the, the CC parallel, which is a speed internal connection, and it's actually called the bone level implant. I mean, Stroman did 180 degree turnaround because, you know, after 20 years, they had to turn around because they cannot, yeah, they cannot say that this does, dual on four does not work, immediate load does not work, and bone level does not work because it's not possible anymore. You can't, you can't keep denying. I mean, at one point, at one point, you have to say, sorry, I mean, stop this nonsense. But of course, they had to change the president in order to say that. <laughs> yeah. And, and you're right, by the way, because now it's called, it's called the Strawman bone level implant. Yeah. Exactly. It's yeah. the BLB implant, which is amazing because it's exactly what they advocate for uh, 15 years. But so whenever you bring this much change to any industry, you're bound to face some sort of criticism. And so that leads me to my question is, is how do you deal with criticism in the profession? And do you consider yourself a disruptor of the profession or revolutionary or both? Well, first of all, we need to understand what is revolutionary and what is disruptive. Now, revolutionary to me, it means that you are against what it is established. That's a revolution. I'm not against anybody. So I'm definitely not a revolutionary. I am an evolutionary. Now, a disruptive person, it's a person or disruptive technique. It's a, a technique that is not, not logical for most people. So, so it is a, a new technique that is not logical. That's why we call disruptive because it, it breaks down the logic that we have. So I am a disruptive person in the sense that all on four is a disruptive technique. The, 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 the speed implant was a disruptive device. The immediate load was a disruptive uh, concept. The bar, the cut cam bar was invented by me as well. 
that is a disruptive concept as well. So these are disruptive concepts. They're not against anybody. We are just bringing this into the market, right? And then people accept it or not accept it, right? So it is disruptive, not not in my sense revolutionary. Yeah, because you have nothing against anybody else, but you're, got but you're changing anybody. what can be done. But I am yeah. changing dramatically yeah. in a disruptive way what is it is done now that brings us to the to the to the question that how much people will actually follow in the beginning of this of course almost none you know that is why for 10 years for 10 years we had this problem with immediate load we had this problem with all on four for 10 years we i mean and, and then if you have just one person or two or three it's okay because you know everybody you know, everybody has his own beliefs and I don't want to discuss that. Everybody goes its own way. But when you have a company, most damage was caused by Stroman. All right. Because Stroman was a big company in those days and still today, probably bigger today than in those days. Stroman is a credible company. Stroman is a company with good products, good credibility. It is a company that you look up to, you know, and listen to them. So when a company the size of Stroman, Start saying that immediate load is wrong, that all on four does not work, that 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 bone level implant is not good, then you do cause a problem in the in the dental community. So so we struggle, we struggle to to get immediate load on the ground. We struggle to get all on four on the ground. We struggle to get the the bone level on the on the ground. But surely. Surely we started getting ground because, you know, people, not everybody is cheap, you know, even Stroman was saying this. When I say Stroman, I say the company, but also the entourage around, around, around Stroman was saying this. So a lot of people, the sheep will follow, but other people, not sheep, start asking questions. And at one point, they started to do all on four with the implants from Brunemart, from the, from Nobel Biocare, from me. And doing the single case with Strauman. So Strauman started to see that people actually were running away for this type of work. So the big change occurred when Strauman decided to launch their own version of Alon 4 called the ProArch. So when Strauman launched first, Strauman, before launching the ProArch, Strauman had to launch the bone level implant. Yeah. Because with the you can't have one without the other. Exactly. So without the, without the bone level implant, they could not ever be. What approximate uh, year was this around? If you know, uh, must have been like ten years ago. I think eight, nine, ten years ago. I I would say, and then the, the they launched the bone level implant, which allowed, and then they launched, of course, the angulate abutment and the pro arch. Pro arch must have been like what five, six years ago. I think. And uh, so if you think ProArch was five, six years ago, I would say the bone level implant was like two, three years before. They, 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 they organized, organized this, the, this, this with years in advance. So, so, so when Strauman launched the ProArch and the bone level implant, then of course, the world changed completely because now you have the two major companies, the two major opinion leaders you know, coming forward with the same with the same proposal, and of course, then today. Although remember that still today, people don't believe in all on four. Eh? I mean, it's almost it's almost crazy. But you know, you have people that say microwaves cause cancer, cause cancer today. 
you know, and people say that all on four does not work. You know, you have bone bla- bone grafts and things like that. So, but of course, the, you always have fringes, right? You always have fringes, you know. But the mainstream today is clearly an all on four immediate load. The 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 Mallow bridge, which is the cut cam bar with the ceramic individual teeth or the acrylic teeth, which we developed in two thousand, I think it was. Today, this is main mainstream, so there's no question about this. Mm-hmm. So one thing I wanted to ask you about was, and something that you, you've mentioned before is, you know, you have these things called mallow centers that have sprung up around the world. And then, you know, you had some pushback, you had some resentment around those centers. And then, you know, different things happen. And there's mallow centers and now there's mallow dental education. So I know you always like to clarify, you know, what are the mallow centers? What is mallow dental education? What are you involved with? What are you not involved with? Can you explain that a little bit better to people? Because obviously, when they know about you, they look up, you know, Mallow Bridge, Immediate Load, All on Four, and they look up Mallow Dental, Mallow Centers, and there's these different things going on. So can you kind of clarify the difference between yeah. those t- things? I think I think it's pretty clear. I mean, the Mallow Centers, which which are called Mallow Dental, they are clinics. They are clinics around the world. We are present in 22 countries, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 22 countries, always with partners. and And we have a list of maybe like, 50 dentists almost every month asking for a center, asking to be a partner in the center all over the world. I mean, literally every month we got 50 applications to be a center, literally every month. And uh, of course, we can't do that. We have to check the person. We have to see what kind of clinic it is, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's a lot of things to go through. But we today are present, I think, in about 22 countries. We we have over, I think, 200 clinics in 22 countries. So we are by lar- by far the biggest dental company by by geographical footprint in the world. Mm-hmm. By far. So that's Mallow Dental. That is Mallow Dental. Mal-O-Dental. That was before was called Mallow Clinic. Before was called Mallow Clinic. Then changed Mallow Dental because I char- I started Mallow Clinic and then we split myself and my our partners we had a big ride you know this kind of thing happens in the companies if you if you look at if you look at apple and steve jobs it exactly happened to me so the, <laughs> the, the the investors came in and literally kicked me out because they knew better and now what happened they lost everything and and i started a new company called malo dental and now they are disappeared and that's good to so know malo clinic doesn't exist anymore no, Malo Clinic only exists in Portugal right now. They only have four clinics. Can you imagine? They, they were present in 18 countries. But that's good so, to know for people because when they're going to look you up, they want to look yeah. Malo Dental up and they want to be yeah. associated with you, which is that's what your right. program is. So yeah. let me just spend one minute of the interview explaining a little bit because I know today there's a lot of confusion about this. I started Malo Clinic and Malo Clinic grew hugely in, in, in the last 15 years. Right. And, and, and we made, I think it was 14 centers in the world with lots of partners and everything. And then, and then the investors in the Malo clinic after the, after 2008, the Lehman's brother, we of course suffered with that. And I had one vision to go forward and they had another vision. Literally, literally, if you see the 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 film the life of Steve Jobs you know the the fights inside the board and and then he being kind of pushed and there's his his friend in the in the board that supported him at the last minute he did not support I had exactly the same story I had one family member in the board that was always on my side and keeping the other the other guys away but at one moment my family member moved to the other side and then the investor said no we go this way so I said all right I'm out and I was pushed out, literally pushed out. 
and I started Malo Dental. Okay. I started Malo Dental with all the partners around the world. So every single partner in the world immediately said, we got nothing to do with the investors. I have, I am with you. So basically, and of course, there's a big, you know, courtroom with some of them and everything was, and I mean, it was a big legal battle and everything. The, the, the things that we won, you know, everybody's Malo Dental around the world. Some of them had to change the name because of these legal strategies. Like United States, we are called Smile US. In Toronto, we are called um, Malo Smile US. In, in, in Canada, we are called Malo, Malo, Malo Smiles Canada. The reason in US, the reason was nothing to do with, with any legal things. The reason in US that we call this way is that in US, there's, there's a hospital called Malo, there's Mayo Clinic. And Mayo Clinic is very similar to Mallow Clinic, right? So from the beginning, when we went to the US, we had this confrontation and we changed to Mallow Dental USA. Just to uh, avoid sorry, the Mallow headaches. Smiles USA, just to avoid. Because yeah. yeah. Mayo Clinic is famous. It's you huge. Don't wanna, you yeah. don't want to go against that. Mayo, no, you do, not want to, you do not want to fight with them yeah. because they can. They can fight with me for the rest of my life, and I, I, I work for, to pay the do- the lawyers, and yeah. about that. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, so but like in Australia, in Australia, we had to change our name to Next Smile, and the rest. Of, and in China, we are called Malo Clinic because Malo Clinic China actually has the right to the name. You know, yeah. So we kind of a little bit like in China, we are called Malo Clinic, although we are Malo Dental. We are changed not to Malo Dental. All over the world, we are Malo Dental. North America, we are Malo Smiles, and in mm-hmm. Australia, we are Next Smile. So, so people, when they're looking it up, they should look for Malo they should Dental. Malo Dental. That's where I am. And then, and can I, you explain a little bit more about Malo Dental Educational? Because that's right. another thing that you kind of started. Right. So just finishing here. So Malo Dental is the new company, and Malo Clinic has closed all the all the clinics in around the world has closed the, most of the clinics in portugal and it looks like they are going to 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 finish but this is a if you want if you guys want to see the film of paulo malo and malo dental just watch steve jobs <laughs> right and then and then you just change the name yeah, because yeah. it's exactly the same yeah. I do not want to die at 60 something, right? That's the only thing I do. I do not want the, the, the film to end like that, but it's very much, it will probably happen what happened as well with them, which is typical on these funds that come in and yes. they think that they, they know, know everything. Better. They know better. And yeah. uh, Okay, so what is Malo Education? Malo Education is a company of Malo Dental that provides education. You know, it's very simple because uh, Malo Dental is focused on the clinical work and we have Malo Education that is focused on basically on education. So, so you will see that in every Mallow dental clinic, there is associated with Mallow education. Why we have two companies? It's because we are very big in education. And it's two different jobs, two different uh, businesses. One is about education, now one is clinical work. But Malo Dental Education does not live, or Malo Education does not live without Malo Dental because we need the doctors, we need the, the you know the infrastructures. So that's the only the only thing. And so, like me and Wendell, were very fortunate again to go see you speak here when you're here in Toronto, and to to talk to other people who are maybe listeners or interested. If they wanted to look up a course for you, whether that's a hands-on one or lecturing, would they look up under Malo Dental Education? 
Yes, okay. of course. They, they, they can look under, ma- if you look under malodental or malodental education, They'll you'll find us. Okay. You'll be there. Or the, you know, social media or, or even Novo BioCare because we are exclusives of Novo BioCare. So if you, if anybody's interested in, in do courses with me, then they, they can, they can go through Novo BioCare and ask, ask to that. do this. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. And we do okay. courses literally every week around the world. Yeah, that, so that was one thing you had mentioned. We were kind of curious about you now currently. What is your work schedule, education schedule like? Because we know you were traveling around the world giving lectures, but you also still do clinical work. You still do cases. You still do surgery. So how do you balance your time right now? What, what is your current kind of schedule look well, like for you? Well, I have a socia that looks like me and sometimes <laughs> lectures, you know, it's this guy, not <laughs> In fact, in Toronto was my socia. Yeah. <laughs> well, basically, I would say that 30% of my time is doing surgery and 30% is research. You see, um, surgical and research, they go together. I mean, we cannot separate both because, you know, we're trying new products, we're trying having ideas. If I do not do surgery, I cannot research, I cannot develop products. So it's by doing surgery that, and by doing cases that, and following those cases through the uh, prosthodontic phase, that I understand the difficulties and the challenges that we have. And that makes my brain start working. And sometimes I'm lucky enough to find a solution. And most of the times, I, you know, I have no luck. I don't find any solution. So that's basically 60% of my work. It is literally research and surgery. And then the other 30% or 25%, 25% I'd say it is lecturing around the world or web, webinars. And there's two types. So there's different types of education. One is big, big, big malls, like 200, 300, 500 people, sometimes 1,000 people. And then there are smaller ones, like 50 people, 40, 30 people. And then there are the WebEx. And then there are the, 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 the dentists that are more evolved, that already work, that already have expertise. They, they do not want to sit and listen to me talking with uh, 100 people without asking questions. Then normally, they they come to small courses, sometimes one-to-one, where they sit next to me and they and, and some of them, they do not want anybody. Some of them are pre-famous and they do not want anybody else next to them because you know they know and they don't want anybody to know that they're asking me how to solve this. So there is this kind of thing, which I understand. And uh, so we, I, do, I do have almost every day Almost every day in my life around the world, I have someone next to me, which is a colleague of mine, which is which is a, a known person, which is a very skilled surgeon, but he's just picking up the little tricks. Yeah, like finesse, know, like getting a little bit more the advanced. finesse, the finesse, and and normally sometimes he has some cases that went wrong. It does not really. Do. And then when I go to that country, I go to his clinic and I sit next to him and we solve these cases. This, that. So, so we have this type of, of, of really kind of private education, if you will. That's, re- so that's really nice. And that camaraderie you, is actually really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, and then, since you have yeah. such a balanced schedule, do you enjoy teaching surgery more or performing surgery more? Because you do both I, so often. What I enjoy most is the 60% which is surgery and and research. That's what I enjoy most. Uh, Education, I enjoy to have somebody next to me that, you know, that we can trust each other and I can open myself and show you the little tricks and, uh, you know, solve cases and that. 
If you ask me if I enjoy standing in front of 500 people <laughs> and give a speech for half an hour, I really, you know, yeah. I, that means nothing to me yeah. because you I've hate this podcast. This is, this years, is the worst so. part of your day. The podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, actually, I do a lot of, you know, interviews yeah. and I like it because, you know, it's relaxed. I don't have a schedule. You know, I, I, I answer the way I want it, yeah. you know, and, and it's, it's relaxing. What I do not like is to, when people say to me, okay, can you give a 45.5 uh, minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, don't deviate. It has to be. Don't this. deviate. Yeah. This, this and that. And then I said, can't you find someone else to do that for me? Yeah. You know. So, like in Toronto, is one type of education I do that I, I literally speak about the history of the Olon Four. How what we did now. You know, explain details because if you want to learn how to do the Olon Four, there's hundred people out there that can teach you. You understand? I mean, you know, honestly, if you want to know how to do Olon Four. There's 100 people that can give you a lecture explaining how you do all on four, blah, 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 blah. Now, if you do all that, then you want to raise a little bit the bar. Then you come to me and you sit next to me, you stand next to me and we do these things, you know. If you want to know about the story and how did I do this and blah, 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 then I like those those lectures. Those are normally two, three, four hour lecture, which basically... People ask me questions and I answer. And, and like in Toronto, I came with a lecture of eight hours or six hours and I gave half an hour of that lecture. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, was just answering questions and, you know, yeah. deviating from the, from, the, from the issue. And just getting back to your surgery, when you say that 30% time, are you doing all of your surgery or the majority of it back in Portugal or are you traveling to any? No, I do surgery all over the world. Okay. Yeah, I love the world. I mean, I come to Portugal. That's my, Home I live base. in the farm. Mm-hmm. I am a wine producer, uh, and my own base is the farm. and And I, I am I am talking to you through the farm now, by in the farm. and And I was just in the tractor before I came here. That's why <laughs> I've got my shorts <laughs> dust. <laughs> and 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 I come to Portugal. I'd say two times, three times per month for two, three days. Okay. Oh wow! Wow. One, you know, we're we're getting close to the end of the interview. But one thing I definitely wanted to ask you, and I know a lot of our listeners would want to ask you whenever they meet you, is you mentioned, you know, different implants are like different vehicles and they're des- like, it's fascinating learning about the designing process that goes into thinking about threads, bone level, pitch, as you said, tapered at the end for the osteotomy. So if you were to look at the current modern lineup of implants now, you know, for you, you have the Nobel Parallel CC, there's Nobel Active. On the Strauman side, there's probably BLT, BLX, things like that. But when, when you're looking at these implants now, do you just recommend if someone's using Nobel, they should use parallel CC for pretty much everything based on the size and length? Or is there a place for active? And another thing that a lot of people always debate is, you know, the length of the implant. A lot of people say after 10 millimeters, 12 millimeters, there's no added benefit from going longer. But I'm just curious what you think about, about this, because you're, you're at the heart of designing and doing the research and actually testing these things. Well, if anybody tells you that after 10 or 13 millimeter, there's no adding value, this person knows nothing about implants. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tell him that I told him that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, because, you see, if you have a lot of bone volume and the bone is like butter, and if the head of the implant is in the molar and the tip is in the nose for bicortical ac- uh, anchorage, how can you place a 13 millimeter implant? It's not possible. You understand? It's just not possible. And how the hell are you going to reach the zygoma or the pterygoid or something with a 13 millimeter implant? So you have to understand that most people, I would not say most people, I would not be nice and kind, but I say a lot of people giving lecture and talking, they do not really know a lot about this. 
honestly. Because I, I've seen people lecturing and and what they say, I mean, I just think myself, you know, crazy. I mean, this is this is crazy. And what you just said about the size and no adding value. Now, if the bone is dense, then it's another story. If the bone is dense, placing 8.5 or 10 or 11.5 is the same thing. You don't need to place 15 because there's no adding value. You understand? But but for instance, the speed implant, which is really the professional line, has implants that no other company has. They have 20 millimeter implants, 22, 25. Uh, just yesterday, just yesterday, I placed two implants of 25 millimeter in an alone for maxilla and old lady. Because we do, we had a, a big maxilla, but literally butter. Literally butter. So I had to, to reach 35 newtons, I had to place a 25 millimeter implant with the head of the molar, the tip inside the nose, and with a two millimeter osteotomy. So you can understand. Otherwise, I would not be able to do this case. So you have to understand all these kind of things. Now, about about the other the other choosing the implant, asked, yeah, like parallel, active, like how, Listen, how are you designing? Choosing an implant, it's a complex a complex thinking process. And I have to be very careful here because I do not want to talk bad about any implant in the world, okay? So I make my life of showing people and explain to people what is the objective of this implant on the, and that implant. So I would, not, I would not go into that. But I will tell you this. There are some basic facts that... You know, our profession is not about religion. Our profession is about facts and proven scientific data, right? I mean, all the rest is pure Hollywood. Now, if you have to understand that you have to have implants that have full thread. Without full thread, you have less, less anchorage, less stabilization. And... Some people say, well, but if you the bone is very dense, then you don't need. Yes, but you know, companies cannot have implants, cannot have 220 types yeah, of implants. Yeah. I mean, if if I will say, all right, let me see what kind of bone you have, what yeah. kind of person you have, this I'll I'll show choose this implant for you. It's not feasible. So, like, no, it's yeah. not, it's utopic. Yeah. It's utopic. Unless you're prepared to pay two thousand dollars for each implant. Yeah. It's utopic. Now, implants must be universal. Must be universal. And then out of the universal implants, and what is an universal implant? An universal implant is an implant that you can do soft bone with this implant, which means that the implant has to be tipped. I mean, the, 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 apex, the apex must be must have a pointed apex to expand. It must be fully threaded, you understand? And that's it, because that implant works for soft bone, obviously works for hard bone. Soft bone, you go thin osteotomy. Hard bone, you increase the osteotomy. Yeah, that makes sense. Period. Like that. Now, Which is why you have the protocol on the, of course. on the drill kit. There's a soft protocol, exactly. hard exactly. bone protocol. Then you need to understand that we do need to have special implants because we cannot do we cannot use the zygoma without a specific long-shaped implant. So we mm. do have to have these implants. Now, tuberosity implants and pterygoid implants, you can use a 25 millimeter uh, speedy implant. But speedy is the only implant in the world that comes with 25 and 22 millimeter, even 20. Some implants only go up to 16 millimeter. If you have a company that only delivers implants to 15 or 16 millimeters, you are 
carving away all the difficult cases, which makes sense because, you know, most dentists are not doing difficult cases. You understand? So it's even better for them to say, now we only do easy cases. That's it. I understand. But when you go into a professional mode, you can't have that. Now, the other thing you need to understand is this. We have two types of implants, internal connections and external connections. Then in the internal connection implants, you have different types of connections. And the external, you only basically have one type of external connection. Now, most dentists, they prefer internal connection implants. The reason is very simple. An internal connection implants, it's easier to fit the abutment into the implant. And also, we have a slightly better fitting process, meaning that the, the junction is, is, is better. But we do have problems as well with this implant. For instance, if you have very thin bone, you need to have a 3.3 millimeter implant or a 3 millimeter implant or a 3.5 millimeter implant. You should never go to internal connection because on a 3.3 or a 3.5 millimeter, if you make a hole inside the implant, to take an abutment, you obviously having a very thin plate around that hole. And if you load that, you will break that. How do we see that? We see that on the implants that are 3.5 and less sometimes with internal connection, they break very easily. Another thing you see is that in implants, even with 3.75, 3.5, or even 4 millimeter internal connection, when you combine them with zygomas, you see these implants breaking as well because that's the all-on-four hybrid, when you have two implants in the front and two zygomas. If the implants in the front are internal connection, thin implants, they break easily. So you have to understand that if you go thin, you have to go external connection. If you, if you go wide, then you can, you can have internal connection. If you want to go to the soft bone, but a lot of volume, you have to go bigger implants, longer implants. And then there is an implant. There's a specific implant for very soft bone, which only exists on the speedy line, which is the, the five millimeter implant with a four millimeter connection. Because no one has a but angulated abutments for the wide platform. So the speedy has a specific implant, which is five millimeter wide for very soft bone, but the head is four millimeters, which takes the four millimeter abutment angulated. So these are specific things. So basically, you have to understand. I know this is complex, and you know, and that is why companies don't like this complexity, mm -hmm. right? Companies they like, you know, okay, this is the implant we have, sixteen for everything, millimeter, cookie yeah, cutter for everything. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah. You know? But but and and then you as a dentist and you start doing implants, then you start with that. But sooner or later, if you are good you got good hands and you start having more cases, sooner or later, you will find out that this is not enough for you. You understand? This is not enough because, because if you take away the special implants from me, 99% of my case, I can't do it. You can't do them, yeah. Listen, what kind of case do you think our colleagues sent to me? For sure. You're not the getting the straightforward, thing, easy implant. Like, no, the, yeah. shit, the shit stuff, you know. <laughs> the things they don't want to do. The, the lower stuff, first you know, molar that's, that's six months after extraction. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, exactly. Yeah. No, they're not going to send me these cases. Yeah. They're going to send me the cases that, you know, that, that you know, that, you know, just blows your face. Yeah. So yeah. I need these special implants. Yeah. Now, the fact that so many colleagues around the world send me those cases, that is actually a blessing for me because that allows me to be in front of challenges, and therefore, it forces me 
to come up with solutions yeah. for these mm-hmm. problems. And that's why I came up with more than 20 patents. You know, I mean, I'm not going to name them all, but all these things that I have developed are because I am solving problems. Yeah, the situations you, know? you were put in, you had to yeah. solve them. If I was a normal dentist in a, in a clinic, I would not be able to do this because, you know, 99% of my case would be standard cases. Why would you need to do that? For sure. Why? Exactly. Now, because I travel around the world and we have literally hundreds of dentists that ask me, listen, what do I do in this case? Next time you come through my country, let's do this this together. That allows me. And of course, I have the, the, the backup of Noble Biocare Special Department of Special Products. So I can tell them, you know, can twist this here, yeah. increase this thread, change this. So with this backup, of course, I can develop a lot of good products. And next year, you will see next year, you will see something big coming. Oh, that's oh, that's exciting. So that's yeah, that's a teaser. We like that. Yeah. But so yeah, yeah. now that now that we are unfortunately getting to the end of, of the interview, are there this was just as productive as a lecture that you had that we went to in Toronto. Are there any shout outs you'd like to give? Because it seems like your network is so big that are there people that you would like to give thanks to? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I would like to, you know, you cannot reach this stage without people around you. That's that's just not possible. So, you know, I, I'm not going to spend half an hour naming everybody around my father, my mother, my brother. And the cleaning lady that, <laughs> that you know, that, that at, at one o'clock in the morning comes, brings me coffee, yeah. you know, this kind of thing. You know? So uh, I, uh, I am very lucky to have so many people that respect me and like me, literally like me, not just like me, you know, when, when they eat. When the time is right. For them. Yeah. Yeah. They, I have all over the world, literally all over the world. I mean, when I, when I quit Malo Clinic and I made Malo Dental, Literally, I had hundreds of emails from all over the world saying, I'm with you. Do you yeah. need anything wow. from me? This and that, you know, and that shows me the support. And yeah. that allowed me in two years to rebuild everything that, that like nothing. basically I lost, you yeah. know. So that shows you how much, how much people respect me. And, and, but again, people respect me because I respect people. You know, if you don't respect people, if you are greedy, if you are, if you are arrogant, if you're not humble, people do not respect you. They only respect you when in your presence, right? Because they are afraid of you. But nobody should be afraid of anybody, right? So you have to be humble. We are just human beings. We are here through so many years and then we just gone and gone. Hey, please be humble, understand everything, you know, and another thing important is that through my life, I went through situations that I do not wish others to go through, like, you know, showing me, calling me cowboy that uh, all on four was uh, stupid and an immediate load is uh, just a stupid boy from Lisbon, you know, not even a professor doing this. I went through, they did not want to publish my first studies on immediate load single teeth. They did not want to publish. Now, everybody begs me for studies, you know. So I do not want this to go on to youngsters, you know, people that have ideas. You can imagine, I go somewhere, there's always five or six people come to me, listen, I developed this, what do you think about this? I always said, listen, it's very difficult for me to say that this is good or this is bad, you know, it doesn't make any sense, you know, and and sometimes people may say, oh, it's not interesting in what I just uh, developed. We have to say that 99% of the things that people develop are just, you know, bullshit stories, you know. And that's the fact, you know, so everybody comes with me, oh, I developed this new implant. And I said, listen, I have no power to, and I have no time to check this, but 
if you really develop something, you have to go to a company, right? Smaller company, they're the best because big companies, they don't want to talk about you. But go to a smaller company, present your work. And if they think it's good, then you, you're good to go. I know that some good ideas are lost. That is for sure. But myself, I spent 10 years to have around all the companies with all on four. 10 years of my life. Only on the 10th year, Noble Biocare changed the president and the president was a crazy woman and a crazy woman bought it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sometimes we just, we see the end result, but we don't see the struggle that went into that. Of course. I mean, you know, this is not just, it's not, it's not about having good ideas. It's about also making that a good idea reach the market. And, and to be honest, that is a, that is a huge part of the business as well, of the, of the effort, not the business, the effort. Because, you know, not now, of course, now I'm known. If I have a good idea, of course, there are three or four companies that immediately come to me and said, I want it, I want it. Ah, it's easy for me. But it was not like that. Huh? I was, I was banned from lecturing on immediate load single teeth in the United States. <laughs> You know, in the, in the, in the, in the, yes, I was banned. I said, oh, you come to speak about this, but you cannot say, you cannot talk about wow. immediate law because. You know, and then when I start talking about all on four, it was the same thing. I was literally banned from some congresses. I was in a congress in Germany. I remember when the, when the guy before me, they set me up. They set me up on this congress. The guy before me was an engineer saying the all on four was impossible to work. But the problem was that the guy that said that was an engineer did not know that all on four had gone already for 10 years for results. <laughs> so when I presented, he said, this that's, is That's embarrassing. Oh, oh my God. It's embarrassing yeah. because he thought that this was a new idea. Yeah. And I said, this is the result for 10 years. It was a new idea 10 years ago. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Oh. So, you know, to say that this does work, sorry, you should have said that 10 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that guy probably has nightmares like, about that. About the conference. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's they. It's not easy. I was going to say, I don't know easy. if they Listen, set you I, up. I tell you one. Or they I set him up. Story. Yeah, they, they might no, have they set him up. Yeah, they set me up, but it just, you know, when it backfired. Yeah. It backfired on him. But, you know, I my uncle is a very famous dentist, was a very famous dentist in, in Portugal, orthodontist. And one day he called me and he said, You have to stop this nonsense of all on four. You know, he told me. Because. <laughs> We are family. You have the same name as me. Oh, yeah, and I do yeah. not want this because everybody was calling him and saying, your nephew <laughs> is crazy. Stupid thing. Yeah. He's crazy. He's <laughs> placing four implants, inclined the implants, loading immediately. You know, it's, I mean, you have to tell him to stop yeah, this, you know? Yeah. And so my uncle called me and said, please stop this. So you can see the pressures Perfect. you have through yeah, life. Yeah. Well, listen, it was great speaking to you. We know you're busy. We, we thank you for taking the time to, to speak to us, Paolo. And, uh, this was, it was a, good. The tractor is cool now. You know, it was a little bit warm now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We had a great time with you. So thank you so much for coming on the thank podcast. You. Thank you very much. Thank Take you. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, Oscar, I thought that was a really great info. I learned a ton. And you can, as I mentioned before, we brought him on. You can just tell that he's had such a unique life path. And credit to him, like, it is so hard to just invent things and no. trial things. Like, yeah. When he was talking about the physics experiments of like proper torque and load and, and again, you know, did a three-legged this, chair versus a four-legged chair, it's just genius. And he did this two years out of dental school, yeah, right? Like, like this is this is crazy. Like, it's not like a person who's been working thirty years. And you you were something. you were an R one two years yeah. out of dental school. Yeah, like, school. exactly. That that it's nuts when you actually think about what this guy was planning and developing when he was so young. 
Very, very impressive stuff. I highly recommend people attend this course. If if if, if he's coming to a city near you, just go Sign to up. it. Sign up. Or if you want, he talked about the educational stuff they have. So if you want to find a city in the world you wanted to visit anyways and go to one of his lectures, they're very entertaining lectures. Like even for us that are oral surgeon specialists that have knowledge of implants and all on four and we don't want to just be bored by stupid things. Like he's very entertaining. And like, I just find what I liked about him most actually was the way he explains things I found was very high level and very, very good. Yep. So, so thanks to him for coming on. I know he's a busy guy and we know it was a long interview, but that's because, you know, we're going to get this guy once. We, yeah, you got to really ask wanna, him everything. You got to ask him everything and get everything. And I think it's going to be a popular episode because once I see people, his name, like this is going to resonate a lot with a lot of people. I agree. So thanks to him. Let's move on to our next segment, which is Journal Club. So the article that we chose this month from Jameis is called Maxillary Full Arch Restorations biologic complications and narrative review outlining criteria for a long-term success. This is by Michael Block, who's a famous name in the world of implants, and he's a clinical professor at LSU. So pre-screening, right away, Michael Block, you know the name, you know, he's famous for implants. And this is a very, very rare thing, but I always look at these articles. It's called the solo author article, SAA, little acronym I just made. Very rare. Okay, not And they're usually by like very established people. And yeah, you well, you can only do these solo articles if you're established where people are going to take it seriously. Yeah, because who would accept it otherwise? But yeah. also it means that because a lot of times the other articles you have, like, let's say five people and you just have a minion writing it. And then, you know, the guy that like three of these guys, they read it, but they didn't really contribute that much to it. Right. Whereas solo author article, I mean, this guy's writing it, he's doing it. Otherwise, you'd have to give credit to someone else. So that passes a good pre-screening. As I mentioned, it fits well with our full arch kind of themed episode. So we like that. So let's start. Basically, he says the clinical problem addressed in this narrative review is the presence of peri-implant disease that occurs with maxillary full arch restorations. Implant and prosthesis survival is reported to be over 90% after 10 years of function, and most prosthetic complications are reversible and do not affect the overall implant prosthesis survival rate. So right away, what they're saying is kind of implants fail, prosthesis fail, but the most common thing is that the prosthetics will fail or yeah. break and they have to be replaced, but your overall survival and the implants are fine, good. which is good news for us. Yeah, exactly. Because as oral surgeons, it means that's they're our across the donnas. They're not yeah. seeing us. Yeah, you're not using my chair time. Yeah, so that's, that's good for us so far. So when it comes to the results, 53 articles were coll uh, collated and they satisfied the inclusion criteria and short-term articles showed high levels of success, but long-term articles were square. So he really made a point of saying it's hard to find articles with long-term data, which is really what you want when it comes to these full restorations, because we yeah. implants in general, we don't care if it's survived three years, yeah. if it's survived 10 years, 15 years. Um, Unless you're late in your career, then who cares? <laughs> <laughs> but, but for us, it matters. Also, it's like, I'm retiring next year, Wendell. Oh, what happened? Oh, just yeah. all my full arches are about nine years out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, stop. you know what? It's time to hang it up now. Yeah. <laughs> the total incidence of biological complications has a large reported range. It's between six to nine percent at the beginning and then 49 percent at five years so right away you're like yeah okay um that was high and then read the next one and 90 at 10 years 90 percent at 10 years yeah. so it was found to increase with age and smoking so right away this was a shocking stat to me because i was like oh 90 percent are gonna have some kind of i'm not doing any urges in anymore. 10 years yeah do you want to do any of them it's, it kind of scares you a little complete bit complete dentures for everybody over dentures yeah we're the future yeah he says peri-implantitis for this article was defined as marginal bone loss and it's a primary biologic complication. So obviously it's something we're really worried about. And it ranges from 5.9 to 28%. So I don't know. Right away I thought peri-implantitis, 
this rate of complications pretty, pretty high. Even on the people that Gonzalez, when they removed the prosthesis every two years, had hygiene maintenance every six months, they still had periimplantitis in 14%. And, you know, obviously the article goes into it, but hygiene is so important, really hard to do because as surgeons, we place implants, you do your fault, there's no infection, you know, they've been restored. You'll maybe see them a few months later, take your final x-rays, make sure everything's fine, the design's fine, the fit's fine, the aesthetics are good, take your photos. And you're hoping you're never going to see that person again. But with this level of complications quite high, they did find that implants with less than three millimeters between adjacent implants were three times more likely to have periimplantitis. That makes sense and that you can kind of blame maybe the placement on because as you talked about in a resident reminder previously, Oscar, the critical measurements for implants, you had mentioned that when you put implants next to each other, you got to have a minimum of three millimeters between them, right? So when it comes to bone loss, they said marginal bone loss range from 0.38 at three years to 1.4 to 2.8 after five to six years. It, funnily enough, and I don't know if you noticed I this, saw but this. They didn't, I was laughing. Yeah, this is pretty yeah. awesome. I laughed because it says in Malo's clinic, marginal bone loss at five years was 1.18 and increased to 1.67 at 10 years. So Malo, like, he's crushing it. Makes it. He crushes it. He just comes in this article yeah. unintentionally on this episode and is just like, oh, 10 years, yeah, 1.67 millimeters yeah. of bone loss. My stuff still looks good. It's absolutely good. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, if we see 1.67 millimeters at the six-month follow-up, we're thinking, yeah, as long as it stops, we're okay. <laughs> I see it on my first PA when I take when I put the implant. I'm like, yeah, it looks pretty <laughs> <When> good. <laughs> you see it on your first PA, and you say, oh, it's just, it's, don't worry, it's just subcrestal. No, no, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just subcrestal. <laughs> For hygienic prosthesis, he said after six years, the average marginal bone loss was 1.4 in a prosthesis with no flange and adequate access. So this is kind of the biggest thing when they talk about hygiene and maintenance. Basically, what they're saying is hygiene is critical. If you don't have it, it was a 33% failure rate. So having the prosthesis that's accessible and hygienic is incredibly important. But as we'll get into later, easier said than done because in order not to have a flange, so it's actually ties in beautifully with a previous resident reminder we had that you should go listen to if you haven't. But when we talked about full arch prosthesis, right? We talked about FP1, FP2, FP3. FP1 being fixed prosthesis one has you know, crowns, but no pink, you know, no flange, no gingiva. FP2 has a small amount of pink and FP3, you know, has a full flange. And the main thing is, is if you have appropriate number of implants and you don't have someone with a high smile line or a need for soft tissue support, you don't need that pink flange. And therefore people can just come clean above the crowns kind of in the implant area with a water peg, toothbrush, floss. It's like a tooth, exactly, it's like a tooth. But the article kind of said how, you know, a lot of the reason for this failure is we're not building prostheses without flanges and, you know, our bone loss management is not. But I'm going to go come on and say that usually these full arch cases are there for a reason. And usually there's not a lot of bone. And usually an alveoplasty is required to get to the wider bone. And it's very easy to just say, build up the bone or put the implants in better positions. But you almost always need a pink flange. So I think that's something that's a little bit easier than done. And, and one kind of criticism I had of the article is that I get what they're saying, like a solution could be, but it's, it's not a lot that of these simple. patients, if they have vertical atrophy, it's not as simple as just doing a hip graft and doing lateral blocks. They have no height. It's not going to do anything. They talked about peri-implant mucositis, extremely you know common, 12 to 57%. Something they nice is like a salvage. So basically, if your full arches are, are, are failing, they, they would salvage them and just convert the cases to overdentures. And success rate of overdentures, 97%. Gotta love the overdenture. Great stuff. 
So, and five years, they said it was 94%, and hygiene was reported as excellent, and mean bone loss for the overdentures was 0. 0.7. Nothing. Because yeah. <laughs> you take it off, you clean it, you're good yeah, to yeah, go. Yeah, like you're good. So, what he mentioned is the surgeon and restorative dentists have to decide on the final form of the prosthesis. So, basically, in the restoration can be a set of teeth with no pink. Basically, that's if you're missing teeth and you have a small amount of alveolar bone loss, which I've never seen from a full arch patient yeah, so far. Yeah, honestly, no. You can have a restoration with a set of teeth and minimal pink. So that's very common. I'd say mm -hmm. that's you know, one of the more yeah. common ones. And then you can have a restoration that requires a flange. And he argues that if you need such a large flange, you should switch to a removable. I think that makes sense. The yeah, problem is convincing I... the patient of that can sometimes be a little bit hard. He did mention that prosthesis will need repair in almost 100% of patients as time progresses. So... You really have to have a good prosthodontist, good follow-up, and they have to understand on the re restorative side, there will be repairs and things that need to be done. For the solutions in the discussion, he mentions that, you know, we don't treat full arch cases like we do single implants. He mentions that, you know, if you had a single implant, you don't have bone, you wouldn't do some alveoplasty and go down. You would build up the bone, do your grafting, and then place an implant in the correct position. The difference is you have the adjacent teeth. You might have the height. You have a reason that you can't do an alveoplasty. I find it's a lot more difficult when it comes to full arches. But that being said, he is an expert on this topic. So maybe he's trying to promote more of he's building things up rather than tearing it. things down. Yep. But I know you've seen a bunch of full arches in your office, Oscar. Have you seen a similar approach of building things up? Or has it been more of an alveoplasty get to the wider bone and then and place it there? I, I would say our office is very more the conventional. There's not really building things up. Also, you have to realize a lot of these patients, the whole thing is they don't want it grafting. That's why they're choosing this option. And at least in our, in our population, we're seeing that, right? Like they don't want to have graft. They don't want to have second surgery. They're like, I want, I want my teeth. So that's also going to be a hard thing to, to convince a patient of. It's a good point because a lot of times, you know, the all in four, you're doing one surgery to avoid sinus grafting. Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually a great point. So overall, I must say, I was a little bit disappointed in the article in the sense that because of the name and because of the title, I thought this was going to be a little bit more of a, these are all the cases that have been done over time. And these are the pearls you should take from it going forward to do your future cases. Whereas I found it was more of a retrospective kind of systematic review of previous articles, mostly just saying that hygiene is important, yeah. which and I, I guess I didn't realize, I didn't realize how important it was, but I did kind of understand that it was important. It, it, it is, but it is, yeah, I would say, I kind of feel almost the exact same way with the article, but it is good to reinforce. Sometimes patients come in and they're like, oh, I'll take all my teeth out, put implants, then I don't have to worry. It's like, well, we have to state you do have to worry, right? They still mm -hmm. have to be treated. You still have to maintain them. You can't just teeth, because if not, you're going to be back here with failed implants. Definitely. And, you know, it, it is says an narrative review outlining criteria for long-term success. So you could argue, he did tell us the long-term success is proper hygiene and maintenance. But from the solutions aspect, other than building it up, I don't really know what I could do from a surgical standpoint to kind of help with long-term success other than try and make sure the final prosthesis is a hygienic form. Yeah. Which a lot of times is not really under our control that much. Yeah. Yeah. Like, again, unless you know the, the prosthodontist or the dentist you're working with, it's hard to dictate their scope, right? Like, you can't really tell them what to do. Yeah, but... I think this is where collaboration really comes in. You know, 100%. to be able to sit down with your referrals and discuss like our concerns is, you know, we want to spread the implants, make it cleansable. You need to make a prosthesis that's cleansable. Yeah. You know, we're all in this together because you're going to send it back to me when it fails. Yeah, no, so, I, I think Brad's right on that. And I think yeah. the only way to do that is also to be educated on the prosto side, right? 
you have yeah. to tell them what kind of prosthesis you want. You can't just be like, I want it cleansable. We're like, okay, well, what, what are you talking about design-wise? So I think that's where we also have to probably be better than most of us are on the prosthesis mm -hmm. side. And that's why a lot of the full-arch courses actually split between a surgeon and a prosthodontist. Yeah, so that we can understand both sides. So I think the article at least fit well with our theme of this episode. And hopefully it'll be a, a good review for people. And you know, the benefit of listening to the show, obviously, is we get to kind of review the article and give you a nice summary. So if it's an article you're interested in, you go check it out, you read it, and Jameis, if it's something you're not as interested in, well, look, you just got a free summary of it. So hopefully people will find some benefit in that. That concludes our journal club. Let's go into our final topic, recommendations. So as predicted, our last episode, which had about 4,000 recommendations by myself, <laughs> had the exact mixed response I predicted. I talked to one person, Brian Rittenberg, who said he fast forwarded through the recommendations part. And I talked to another person, Zane Manji, who said he loved the recommendations part. And he couldn't believe I've never seen heat. So you get you get you yeah. get a mixed bag. Yeah. And the beauty the beauty of the podcast is you can listen, you can not listen, you can fast Just, forward, you can rewind. You can skip, you can come back if you wanna. You know what? Today I don't feel like listening to it, and then tomorrow yeah. you do. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it worked well. I also told you last time that, you know, th th if this is a theme going forward, like I'm not going to shy away from it. Like I'm going to talk about it. And I just I'm in this nice patch where I have tons of time to watch movies and TV shows. And that lasted all of one episode because I don't I guess I jinxed myself, but I've, I've had no time to watch or, or do anything. Last time I had like 12 things I had to watch this time. I have a few things to talk about, but it's mostly from stuff I've watched earlier in the year and now finally finished and things like that. So I'm still on my classic movies, you know, watching. And sometimes when you get into like a movie, you kind of start wanting to watch more movies by that director. Like I talked about like Tarantino and watching some of his movies, like Pulp Fiction. And then recently I was getting into like Steven Spielberg and James Cameron and things like that. So I watched Terminator for the first time, for you know, Terminator with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then I obviously followed that up by watching T2, Terminator uh, Judgment Day. Gotta say, held up very well. Very oh. enjoyable movies, okay. action-packed, plot was great. Schwarzenegger doesn't have to act at all because he says like 11 words in the whole movie. Great, I can see why it became so famous. Like I actually really, really enjoyed both movies. I thought they were actually really good. I, again, I saw that prior when I was, I don't even know, eight, 10 years old, maybe mm -hmm. earlier than that. So I don't remember them at all. I feel like I'm, I should watch these now. Yeah, so I, I remember the, good thing is, the good thing is they're awesome. on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. people love that age. Yeah. But what else is funny is that the funny thing I find about watching classic movies, and I'll get to this one, I'll talk about the next one, is you know the famous parts of movies, right? You know, Luke, I am your father, for example. Yeah. I had known that line for 15 years before I actually even watched that Star Wars movie, right? So Terminator, you know, I'll be back. Yeah. Right? That's the famous line. So when you're watching Terminator, I'm like watching it. And then he says it at like, the most random yes, time like, and the most it doesn't random. fit where you thought it was no. going to be. No, I thought yeah. it was going to be like this. Isn't it when he crashes a car? Yeah, into, right. Like, some in the police station. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just, he just says to the to the the cop attendant, like, is oh, is it Sarah Connor? No, I don't want to mess up her name. I think it's Sarah Connor. I think, that, I think yeah. that's right. Like, it's Sarah Connor here. And he's like, get out of here, bud. You can't, like, I'm not going to give the information. And he, just, and he just says to them, I'll be back. Like, it's yeah, like No part. emotion, no nothing. <laughs> no emotion. So it's hilarious when you catch up to those famous scenes and famous lines. But Terminator T and T two really really enjoy. One thing I am in, one thing I am doing is that I'm not progressing in these movies. Meaning I know Terminator is amazing. I know T two is amazing. I'm pretty sure there's like four Terminators after that. They're probably bad. I don't really want to ruin it, so I'm just kind of stopping at T two. Yeah, you're just limiting it. 
Yeah, I'm limited to the ones that I know are going to be good rather than ruining it. And the other one was Jurassic Park. So I've never seen Jurassic Park, the original. I'd never seen it before. Oh, love that movie. Also on Netflix. Dude, unbelievably good love, movie. Love that movie. 100%. And but I've never the watched any CGI, other ones. the effects, the dinosaurs look amazing yeah. considering, like, you know, CGI now compared yeah, to then, yeah. the time. Unbelievable. Really enjoyed Jurassic Park. Really, really liked it. So I followed that by watching The Lost World. And here's another example where I didn't realize like Vince Vaughn was in Jurassic Park 2. I, I, I did not know that. I haven't He's seen a that. major character. <laughs> Brad, have you seen uh, Jurassic Park movies? Uh, the first one, yeah. Oh, the first one only. Okay. So he's yeah. in the second one. And what I will say is, although the first one was better than the second one, the second one did the sequel right, which is a lot of times sequels, what they do poorly is they just take the exact same movie and do it over again and make like try and like slow alterations to pretend it's a new movie where Jurassic Park 2 no they took one dude from the original movie and put a whole new group of people on storyline around him and just did it again with dinosaurs. so it worked so it worked because it's a totally new plot you can't yeah. just predict who's who and what's going to happen so I thought that really worked well I'm going to stop at Jurassic Park 2 I, I did see ironically Jurassic Park 3 when I was like 12 or whatever it was a long time ago without ever seeing the first two I don't remember it but I think You're I'm gonna done. stop there. I'm not. I'm, I'm done. I'm gonna. I'm gonna stop. But uh, yeah. So those are those are the movies I watched, and definitely recommend them if people haven't seen, especially you know the first ones like watching Terminator for the first time or watching Jurassic Park. Like they hold up very well, and they are very very good movies. How about you, Oscar? So uh, we talked about when before I was having Lennon and thinking like, oh, you're you're gonna watch way less TV, and I'm like, oh no, I'm not. And I watch so much less TV. Both movies, shows, <laughs> and even sports, I watch so much less now. Now I'm pretty much watching highlights of things. But what I have tried to do is because do try to carve out some time for yourself when you're not doing things. Is I started running a little bit late, lately again, and I've started listening to a podcast when I'm running because I was one of those weird people that didn't really need to listen to anything. Yeah, you're the one that's like, I don't need to listen to anything. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, okay, I might as well do something when I'm running because just to pass the time. But I, I never did before, and I started listening to the Huberman Lab podcast oh what's that it's pretty popular i don't know if any of you guys have heard of it um brad have you heard of it brad's probably the producer of it right yeah you know what i was gonna say he probably, on yeah it. he's like he's, he's trying to get the contract right now <laughs> yeah. uh what was that podcast name? <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's a podcast that he's a neuro neuroscientist and an ophthalmologist and he just talks about how the brain works sleep patterns sleep habits how to change the way of thinking how to deal with stress so I've only listened to the first three episodes because they're quite long. They're like two hours. And so I break it up into when I'm going on my run. Really enjoying them, actually. Like, I really, really enjoyed listening to them. When I'm running, it makes me want to keep running. I forget that I'm actually on my runs. And it also makes me want to implement some of the things he talks about in the first couple episodes. of just like What was patterns. the name of it again? Huberman Lab. Huberman Lab. Yeah. H-U-B-E-R-M-A-N-L-A-B. Oh, cool. Yeah. And he's based out of Stanford. So I would say really enjoyable so far i don't i'm three there's like 200 episodes i'm on three so maybe i won't find it as <laughs> enjoyable but so far i would definitely recommend it yeah, that's a good recommendation oscar how about you brad do you have anything yeah anything by alan smithy i checked that out alan smithy is that is that a director he's a director yeah okay so should i look but, it up like yeah is there, any, is, there, is there any background to this brad i mean he's well known he's done a lot of projects so it's you know they're unusual projects so Check okay, it out. So, okay. so Brad's recommendation is Alan. something Smitty. we're going to talk okay. about next podcast, I feel. Next yeah, episode. I think that's something we'll have to look up. Yeah, Brad will have to explain it to us. All right, so we know this was a long one, but we thank you all. If you're, I mean, if you're still if you're still listening now, 
you are you either broke up this episode into multiple parts or you are a true dedicated listener. I, I wish we could do something at the end of the episode to like reward people for being dedicated, but I can't think of anything we can do. And we have no budget to like you no. know, give you a prize. Either way, we like you. But even if they just broke it up, we still like it. They still finish the episode. Send me an email. We'll give you a shout out next episode. Yeah, nice. There we go. That's nice, good, Brad. Yeah, if you actually listen to all, and you can't be like, you know, Rittenberg who skipped everything and then just came to the end of the episode. Yeah. You have no, to actually listen to the cheat. whole thing. No cheating. Yeah, don't be do like you those. Think, do you think there's people that actually skip through the whole episode for your recommendation? <laughs> I know one. I, I actually literally know one person that yeah. literally skips to the recommendations part. I think they deserve a shout out. No, no, you guys don't want to give it to them. No, no, no. you don't you want guys to know me. I'm, I'm you a don't want to that behavior. I, yeah, you don't want to reinforce that behavior. Yeah, my favorite people are the people that listen to the podcast in its entirety when and it comes all the out. Other ones. No, when it comes out in like a few, few, either all at once or like you know, in a few sessions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Within the, within the span of the first week. Yeah, I like those people. Not just one episode, every oh, you episode. Be fully caught up. Yeah, fully caught up. yeah, we know, we know yeah. Wendell's idea. Yeah, yeah there's probably us three and like four people that meet this criteria, by the way. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Oscar, we're going to miss you uh, next week. I know you guys are going to yeah. have fun. Like, again, you're just rubbing it in now. Now you're just rubbing it in. Sorry. You can, I, would, I would say you could register last minute, but you can't because it's sold out. Now, okay. and it's, even, it's, in, uh, it's in Western Quebec, right on the border. Yeah, but it's oh. sold out, so you can't come. Now, you, you, see, you don't even want me to come now because you're The good like, news, Oscar, is... The good news, Oscar, is you really like going to conferences at nice places, and it's at the Fairmont Montebello. So it's not like you're missing out oh, on like world-class again, location. just robbing it in. <laughs> I hope someone pulls hey, the fire hey, alarm you, and you, you guys you didn't come to Florida. Florida. You didn't come to Florida. This is my way of striking back yeah. at you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. Please reach out to us, teethandtitaniumomfs at gmail.com. We do like to get fan mail and like to hear from you. Thank you to all our loyal listeners, and we will be back next month with a brand new episode. Take care, guys. 